All right, everybody, we are all the way live. Welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules live stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov at Levpo on Twitter. And everybody, we have a wonderful show for you today. We have the wonderful, the exquisite, the absolute genius, the madman himself, Alexander Bard, is joining us together with a very often requested guest. And we've had him one time before. Now he's back again, all the way from India, Chad Haig. How are you, Chad? How are you, Alexander? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm perfectly fine, too. I'm actually in Stockholm, Sweden, in sweltering heat at the moment. I mean, Scandinavia right now is a heat wave on a par with India. So mm. probably in similar conditions, Chad and I, at the moment. Well, uh, speaking of heat, we're going to be talking about uh, the end of civilization, whether we're going to have another burning of an ancient, of an ancient Rome, so to speak, in our uh, Western civilization, what exactly is coming down the line. And Chad, I know that you are very much into, uh, how do I say this? You are very much into peak oil, and I'm very curious about where you see things going. So I'll start with you. And once again, everybody, if you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe, add a like. It helps the algorithm, and also click the bell. It's very important for all you guys who are watching this to click that bell. That's going to help a lot. So anyway, without further ado, uh, Chad, I would love to hear your thoughts. And also, for those who don't know, you were a university student who uh, fled to India so as not to uh, pay the exorbitant amounts of money that a lot of American students have to pay today to, uh, you know, to pay off the debt. And now you're in India, and you are a very interesting philosopher. you got a Patreon, which I'm definitely going to plug today as well. So everybody, be sure to subscribe to Chad. But Chad, tell us uh, what you think is coming down the pike. First of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to have this discussion with you. Um, the first thing I'll mention is that um, I moved to India for a higher quality of life overall. Um, the media has maybe misrepresented that as me fleeing America simply in order to get out of making um, student loan payments. That's really not true. I moved to India for positive reasons. It's just a better quality of life. And I realized, um, especially um, through reading John Michael Greer, that um, the reason why the quality of life in India um, was higher than I had experienced in the United States was precisely because there's less technological intermediation. And so this kind of goes against the way that we usually think of this, the standard of living, for example, um, differentiating a first world um, nation like the United States from a so-called third world nation. Well, it's measured purely in terms of technological intermediation, but that's exactly what makes the actual quality of life worse. Now, the um, way to understand truths of, of the kind I just mentioned, as John McGreer is able to do, I think falls back on maybe the same sort of um, uh, hermeneutical methodology, which you would also use to understand peak oil, but it's much bigger than just peak oil. And um, another thing which I think is maybe misunderstood with regard to me is that I'm just a peak oil philosopher, but I think that it's really more than just that. It's actually um, the recognition that ecology allows you to understand, um, for, as Greer mentions, virtually any phenomenon um, in much better terms than you ordinarily would precisely because so many things we um, think are not ecological problems actually are. I think that the rise and fall of civilization is a great example of this. Um, you have the explanations given by people like, say, Penty Linkola, which emphasize the ecological component on a purely natural level. For example, you have um, the pursuit of, um, of projects which 
actually are not possible in terms of the relation of parts and wholes within nature. For example, you have the attempt at universal sanitation, which actually ends up making everybody much sicker than they otherwise would have been. Um, you find this, for example, living in the United States um, as a tourist traveling to a place like India. Um, you may initially get sick from eating food that there's actually nothing wrong with it. Um, it's perfectly fine uh, for the locals. It's just that your own immune system has been weakened um, unnecessarily through the health regulations of your nation. Um, to Dad, the point Dad, that, uh, can, I, can I interrupt with a little example here? I never, yes, suffered from, I never suffered from the daily belly. I've been to India. I go to India every year. I go to India all the time. I think India is the future. So let's start there. That's my relationship towards India. But what I do when I arrive in India is that I drink some of the local water, which is, of course, full of poison, according to Westerners. And then I don't get the daily belly. You're absolutely right about that. Right. I mean, there are ways to avoid the kind of uh, meddling with your immune system, even living in a first world nation. It's just that most people don't do that, right? And this has gotten much worse since um, COV, you know what, um, in which um, for a while, there, even here in India, people thought that they were going to uh, catch the disease from Amazon packages. You know, I remember in 2020, a package might arrive at the house and um, you would um, sanitize it. You would leave it for two days before opening it. And then you would burn the um, package um, that it had come in immediately because you were afraid um, that you were going to catch a, a disease from, you know, somewhere very far away. Um, from a package in the mail that had actually been um, packed by a robot. So um, this has certainly gotten worse since um, COV, you know what, within the past few years. But um, there certainly are ways to um, understand why this is messed up, I think, which are applicable to other fields, including the, the rise of civilization. For example, with uh, Panti Linkola, um in universal sanitation, you're pursuing something which actually isn't even possible. And um, the reason is that if you actually took it um, all the way to the uh, furthest limit that you're trying, um, you would just end up um, having people um, so sick that it would negate the purpose. This is even more clear in, say, the project of universal automation. Universal automation is the idea that um, nobody will have a job, but everyone can still consume. And this is um, formalized into a political pre um, proposal by someone like Andrew Yang. Um, UBI is the idea that the productivity of the technological system will be so great that just a, a minor tax on it will be enough to uh, provide everybody in the United States with a first world standard of living without asking anybody to actually work. The problem with that is, as Lincoln mentioned, um, if you actually um, completed the project of universal automation, you would hear nothing, as he said himself, except um, the sound of um, robots uh, clanking because there would be no people. Okay, so here, um, here, here comes where you and I have shared ground from two different perspectives, where there's a parallax with you and me, Chad. Um, I think my frustration is that I'm a really well-trained economist originally, I understand economy, but I always understand economy is the cultural version of ecology, where ecology is the same thing for nature. So if you think nature, culture is a split, eventually ecology is the best possible way to do and understand nature, and economy is the best way to do and understand culture. But since culture is completely dependent on nature, we cannot construct culture in the world when nature isn't first taken care of. That's basically the state of things right now, what we're worried about in our different works. Uh, and I'm frustrated with these political activists and sort of pseudo philosophers like Andrew Yang, who you just mentioned, who do not understand how economy must be attached to the human soul. Otherwise, economy makes no sense. And they do this on top of the idea they have ignored ecology, so they don't understand the sort of basic conditions of nature to start with. And I think you and I can maybe here come with some different perspectives 
although we start from two different frustrations. What I see in your work, uh, I love the hermeneutics books, and hermeneutical death is a great book, but uh, I think you, you start from the position that unless ecology of nature is fundamentally understood, and we have a narrative that's tied to that, we're lost, right? I would even say that when economists are, are amateurs and do their pseudo-babble thing as well, they do understand that economy at the end of the day cannot be sustainable unless economy is tied to a culture where the culture is tied to the human soul. That's, for example, that to take people off work and give them money to have spare time, you can do that with shamanic personalities. That's maybe 4% of the entire population who would survive not, and not going to kill themselves. We told them, here's money, go off and do your own thing, but you cannot do work. You cannot do anything that has value to anybody else in the market any longer because automation will do that for you. People are going to kill themselves in masses. And that's exactly why... My, my big enemy today is what I call Silicon Valley Platonism. And that's essentially this idea that you could be a tech guy and you, you would know what's best for humanity. You would know what's best for the world when you completely ignore how both economy and ecology actually operate. Mm. Wait, before Chad answers, I wanted to throw something quickly in. There's possibly going to be a BTR guest coming in the next couple of weeks named Alex Stein, who's been doing very interesting uh, social experiments going into these uh, town hall meetings and acting like a rabid leftist as a joke. And one of the things he did in New York is that he was proposing that everybody would be living in this pod-like device strapped into a VR headset, and there will be jobs for the people to clean, you you know, their fecal matter and waste and all that kind of stuff. But he proposed all of New York to just go to sleep so that people would leave, live in that state. That would be his solution to the problem that you just described. Eventually in the conversation, I would love to see whether something like that is even possible, that kind of a dystopian scenario. But I just want to throw that in. And also, everybody, sneed those super chats so that we will uh, answer the super chats in the end. But uh, Chad, go ahead. Yeah, that's um, a really great point, uh, the connection between um, economics and ecology. I think that the ambiguity here is precisely that both of them um, really come from the same word, which we take from Greek without maybe always taking the time to understand what it means, and that's the word for the household. Um, the relation um, to the household that you find in um, ecology is maybe that um, all of the different parts of an ecosystem share the same home, if you will, so it's a little more easy to understand that. But, um, with economics, you have maybe the same argument, but apply just to humans rather than to the um, to the uh, wild animals, the plants, etc. So um, you're still trying to understand how parts and wholes relate to one another, but now uh, maybe solely in terms of human interests, right? Um, insofar as you take into account things like nature, you're seeing it as resources for human consumption. Okay? And um, the question whether there's some common ground between um, the maybe human side of um, understanding the household, or we'll just say the parts and the holes, um, and the, uh, the broader natural side. I think that, once again, John Michael Greer allows us to um, see that um, the um, connection between the two is actually uh, quite counterintuitive. For um, If you really understand um, the ecological relation within nature, you'll be driven beyond nature into the spiritual realm. For the maybe highest understanding of nature is precisely that it too is maybe infused with the same sort of living spirit as we have, and therefore the difference which seemed to exist between maybe thinking of the, um, the, the human uh, part whole relation within economics because we have um, the life force um, that uh, Aristotle identified as um, logos, right? The difference between humans and other animals, which justifies this division is that um, we have 
the sort of um, uh, rationality um, which maybe um, makes um, uh, the gods worthy of worship, um, that's what makes them worthy is that they also have this anthropomorphic character, right? But for Greer as a druid, um, if you understand nature probably, you'll see that all of it is infused with that same sort of spirit. There's nothing inherently anthropomorphic about it. And if you go even further than that, the highest attempts to understand the whole directly, the beyond the parts within it, um, you'll find within the Hermetic tradition, for example, his earliest book from 1996, I believe called Paths of Wisdom. He says that um, within uh, Kabbalah, for example, there are ways of directly symbolizing the whole in its unity, um, but they're all inherently paradoxical symbols. For example, when you reach that point, you, all you can say of the whole is that it is nothing, or more precisely, it is no thing. And you find this within Hinduism also, talking about Shiva, some interpretations of that name within Sanskrit, um, according to Sadhguru, that really is um, just talking about Shiva as no thing, right? You can also talk about um, the, the whole as infinite in the sense of being unlimited. So all of these symbols for the whole are actually paradoxical because they maybe conceal as much they, as they reveal, but ultimately they lead you into the spiritual realm. And I think this allows us to see that the rise and fall of civilization, which is maybe the ultimate example of going beyond economics in terms of just generating wealth and uh, facilitating human consumption of products. Uh, such an important question than that is the um, lifespan of a civilization which sustains that sort of consumerism. Um, that too is understand, uh, uh, can be understood in um, ecological terms precisely because the understanding of how parts and holes relate to one another goes beyond nature. It certainly does not contradict it. And you can learn a lot more about how this works in the human realm precisely if you actually pay attention to nature um, as it is left to itself. That is without the um, yeah, but well, wait, 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 wait a system. second. There's so many things to throw up here. So, Chad, I'd like to go back to what you just discussed. I don't know how familiar you are with my work with Jan Söderqvist, but uh, we are working on narratology, which is basically taking the deconstruction that philosophy did in the 20th century further. And fundamentally, uh, we have a narrative that we share with animals and plants or whatever you want to call it. It's called pathos. It's just life force, as you called it here. But what human beings then do, at least try to do, or if they're pretentious, they try to do is because we do mathematics and things like that. We also have the idea that we have a logos. And the logos is exactly how we try to, for example, with science and mathematics, try to, to nail the world and understand how the world operates. And of course, you do zeros and ones and put them in a computer. That's certainly pure logos. But we cannot unite the logos and the pathos. We're stuck between what we feel and how we relate to the world in terms of logical operations. And this is where we're stuck, and that's what's beautiful with human beings. We have to get out of that. But the only way we can get out of that is by creating a mythos. So we're creating mythical narratives all the time. These mythical narratives don't last. They're then thrown out and have to be recreated. I'm fundamentally Hegelian in the sense that I'm doing narratology in Hegelian manner. And I would say that because there's not even an attempt to do logos in the animal world, there's none of it. There's an attempt, at least among humans. We often fail. We, we, for example, are short-sighted and we create gains for ourselves short-sighted, but, but we don't have long-term commitments and we don't understand the long-term views, and that's exactly where we failed when it comes to ecology. The, the logos operation, though, is something that human beings try to do, and we do manage to do with mathematics and technology. So when technology works to, to our favor, it certainly is because of logical operations. You don't see these logical operations the same way anywhere in nature outside of us. We've created them ourselves, and this is where we're stuck. So we're stuck with what philosophy does is that it creates the conditions 
for a mythos that possibly art and theater and other expressions can then take on. But philosophy is constantly located in trying to find the latest mythos that makes sense and that is valuable for us today. For example, today a mythos of resilience, a mythos of ecology and economy fundamentally and fully understood, you know, less naivety thrown into the worldview. But most of all, I would say, going back to me being a Zoroastrian, you probably being interested in Hinduism, going back to the old split in Eastern philosophy between process and event. I think we'll have to arrive there eventually and trying to understand and might disagree on what we favor, if we're on the side of eventology or if we're on the side of nomadology, which is, of course, process and not the process or, say, traditionalism today. And I, I'd, I'd say that that's probably where we're located by comparing our work. Well, the idea that um, the split between myth or mythological thinking and logical thinking can itself be understood in ecological terms, I think you find especially relevant to the uh, different explanations for why civilizations collapse, given by um, some of the greatest thinkers. For example, um, Oswald Spengler seemed to differ from someone like Ponte Lingula by um, not focusing so much on the um, natural explanation for why uh, a society collapses. For example, um, for Linkola, um, you can explain the collapse of a society um, that is overpopulated in terms of its overpopulation, in terms of its um, um, overstretching the water resources, for example, that, that are available for it. Um, also, uh, uh, things like uh, pollution can only be pushed so far. And that certainly is significant. Um, it's just that um, the same uh, uh, hermeneutical uh, method, which allows you to understand how things like that are violations of particle relations, that can be applied to the symbolic realm as well. And that's exactly, I think, what Spengler does in his own very subtle way, in that he shows that the decline of a civilization, even beyond any consideration of um, natural factors, can be understood in terms of having certain symbolic resources exhausted over time. You find the great example of uh, music, for example. Um, the uh, Western, the properly Western form of music um, uh, within the Faustian civilization, um, insofar as it can manifest itself through the mediation of the particular prime symbol of that civilization, which um, really can be understood as the infinite expansion that you will find within the um, Gothic cathedrals, for example, that's what sets it apart from, say, the Greek civilization, which the prime symbol is. Um, ironically enough, the soma, which is more the condensed body, this is what you find instantiated um, within, say, uh, classical sculpture, etc. Um, for the Egyptians, Spengler says that prime symbol is maybe the mummification of the past. You literally mummify the pharaohs, you preserve their names. That's why one particularly um, controversial pharaoh, they actually just um, physically um, removed all of the inscriptions of his name to, to blot him out, um, to uh, deprive him of being in the sense of he can't pass through the prime symbol of mummifying past. So um, for Spengler, um, you have these, um, this relation on a properly ecological level between the prime symbol and the secondary symbols that, um, that can make sense in terms of that. You have in the West, for example, the uh, Gothic cathedrals, but you also have the particular kind of music which is really perfected in the 18th century by people like Mozart. And uh, most people would be surprised to know that the, the Western form of music actually pretty much had exhausted all of its notional real estate space in like the late 18th century. After that point, any new music within that context is either redundant of things already figured out by people like Bach and Mozart, and insofar as you have like neoclassical music, people like Yngwie Malmsteen, sure, you've got maybe redundancies, fairly impressive ones, of, of people like, you know, 
uh, uh, was it uh, Paganini, the uh, the great um, the Italian um, violinist? Uh, he's very fond of. Okay, so you have redundancy to that, or you have the other option of keeping it alive by um, basically uh, vampirizing another uh, musical form from a different culture. You yeah. import it. I, I, I agree with I agree with, you, I agree with you strongly here. The thing is that I'm working with Cadel Last, another genius of your generation at the moment, and Cadel Last and I are seeing similarities between Hegel and Nietzsche. We were basically we're writing a book right now, Cadel and I, where we're throwing Hegel and Nietzsche against each other in a particle accelerator, and then we're observing what happens when they collide. Right. So I started about playing Nietzsche. He started about playing Hegel. Now we go in between the two characters. Uh, what this is that what starts with Hegel is really that it, it, it's the job of the philosopher to create problems, not to find solutions, especially since science is taken on itself to try to find solutions. So what we're talking about here is actually, first of all, a philosophy of exhaustion, which is a philosophy of death. So. Things are dead the, the second they're exhausted. And you're absolutely right to start with human beings and our naive relationship towards nature. Overpopulation has happened many times in history, and it usually starts, this is just the beginning for the fall of the civilization. It's overpopulated, which means that once it's overpopulated, that would lead to either starvation or war, and usually both. That's probably where we're heading as well now, unless we get overpopulation under control. What seems to be happening, though, is that the Indians still breed, Africans are breeding like hell and nobody else is breeding any longer because Koreans and Italians are just diminishing because they're not giving birth to children. Thank God. So we're solving the problem maybe this time that way. But a philosophy of exhaustion is a philosophy of death. And that's what Hegel does really well. And I think it's a good starting point because once something is culturally exhausted, we're finished with it. We must also leave it instead of vampirizing and try to keep it alive. And this is the problem in nostalgia. The problem with nostalgia is that the mediocre, the, the untalented among us, will hang on to something that actually has been exhausted, and they will therefore try to hang on to it and claim that we must return to it. Like 80-year-olds in wheelchairs who go to Iron Maiden concerts. You know, <laughs> Iron Maiden are dead. <laughs> They're the walking dead. You, could, you might as well listen to their old records or whatever. They're not going to get any better. They're about to die just like you because you're afraid of dying. You still go to the fucking concert, raise your fist in the air and think you're fucking cool. No, you're just an 80-year-old in a wheelchair. Mm. You're over and down. Please die, right? So I think if, what you're interested in, you're really interested in because you're expressing a desire to construct the philosophy of exhaustion. What do we do when we exhaust things? In what way must we then leave what we've exhausted because we've killed it? Because we have perfected it, there's no more, nothing more to do. It's over and done with. It can only be enjoyed as a museum piece. And that's fine. Because philosophy has so far successfully managed to produce more and more problems. And you and I, Shad, must not do anything else but produce more problems for people. So many problems, they don't have time to find solutions for them. Make them fucking psychotic with more and more problems. We will keep them busy. It will certainly give them jobs and will keep them away from these really weird ideas that have no human soul attached to them any longer. These sort of Silicon Valley Platonists to think that if we just got paid to, to just use our spare time, become, become fucking addicts, opioid addicts. That's what mm. you get. If you give people money, there's no connection to the work any longer. The connection between human beings and work is as fundamental as the connection between culture and nature. You cannot ignore that. Mm. Alexander, I have a question for you. So when it comes to overpopulation, at least what we seem to be seeing in China, and maybe to a lesser extent the West, is that there seems to be an underpopulation of younger people. 
while there is an overpopulation, overabundance of uh, boomers. And where do you think uh, that's going to be uh, going? It's historically an event. It's never happened before in history because we didn't have abortions and we didn't have pills. Okay? Something happened. So what happened in China, Korea, Japan, Western Europe, and increasingly North America, minus the immigrants, is that women refuse to give birth to children, or at least give birth to the two children per woman they must give birth to, to just keep reproduction going. That means we get a very big old, old population that are wealthy, the accumulated wealth throughout their lifetime. They start dictating the conditions for everything, meaning they gotta be nostalgic and conservative for all the wrong reasons. It means radicality is dead. And what you then get, you get a young generation that are so attached to their own hopelessness that they go fucking woke. Woke is fake. Woke is totally fake because woke is not attached to reality. Woke is essentially avoiding, for example, Marxist class analysis and saying that class analysis is so fucking problematic because our grandparents have all the money. We have no money. And because we don't want to fight our grandparents and we don't dare to, and we're too lazy to read any fucking books and learn anything, these guys don't read Chad Hat books and they don't read Alexander <laughs> Bard books because they're lazy. Okay, the smart guys read our books and they learn and then they go into dialogue with us and beat the shit out of me and Chad, which is what you should do if you're smart, right? So few young people are willing to take the real fight. This is why I'm a Marxist. I'm back to Marxism again, because you must either take the class war, which is now young beating the shit out of the old, or else you will go into the pseudo activities that woke culture is obsessed with, which is an endless long line of, of, of victimhood cults of all kinds of offended minorities that want to have compensation for their offenses, right? Big shit. It's just not going to happen, right? Woke is woke, woke will ultimately lose, and it will lose big time. And what we'll have is that we'll have a tons of Iron Maiden wheelchair people who will control America, China, and Europe. And they will not have any grandchildren because they were too fucking eager to make their own self-accomplishments in life, and they foster the children to be narcissistic youth, and none of them have kids any longer. Even the Indians are now dropping the bomb, meaning not even the Indians are breeding. The only people left on the planet, and here's what Kettle Last is absolutely right. The next 100 years world history belongs to India. You'll see it happen over the next 10 years when China implodes and America has its own problems with itself. India is the future for the next 100 years. After that, it's all about Africa. And we'll then have the Africans basically invade the rest of the world and populate it because none of us will breed any longer. Thank God the Africans are still sexy and fuck. Nobody else does. That's how the world looks right now. So the starvation or overpopulation problem is ironically solved with an event, not a process, not a return to the same that we had before. Without war and starvation, we are actually now killing ourselves through narcissism by not giving birth to babies. Mm. Chad, do you agree? I think that um, one thing which can be said about the uh, wokeness phenomenon is that you do indeed um, see a, a very strange uh, process of natural selection at work here in which uh, people are rewarded for nothing, for being incapable of thinking. Even the um, um, things which they're fighting for, they don't really understand. A great example of this is the um, phenomenon of um, leftist uh, neo-pagans um, retrieving uh, demon summoning manuals uh, from centuries ago after Donald J. Trump was elected. And um, the story goes that um, they were willing to sell their souls to the devil in exchange for uh, Trump being removed from the White House 
um, and the um, House and Senate being controlled uh, by Democrats. They didn't realize that what they were really saying was that they would sell their soul to Satan to get Joe Manchin elected because of the demographic um, nature of um, the uh, 50 states and the uh, share of power within the Senate in which um, um, each state gets uh, the same representation. What they're really asking for was for one um, a red state to um, uh, have a moderate a Democrat narrowly win. And in 2018, that happened. This was after they had made this deal. So um, they were saying something which the global technological system had um, naturally selected um, to be beneficial for them if they repeat, which is for Democrats to control government. They just didn't realize that what they were really saying was for Joe Manchin to be elected. And I think this can only be understood through Ted Kaczynski's um, theory that uh, leftism is um, not an ideology or any group of individuals. It's rather strictly a psychological type, which can be reliably identified on the basis of just two morphological traits. These are, of course, over-socialization or the tendency to do exactly what um, is expected of you within society, um, even if one of those things is to pretend to be rebelling against it. And then um, feelings of inferiority, which is a certain ressentiment, uh, as Nietzsche would say, or um, a self-loathing, which... Um, you are able to express publicly by um, um, by being offended at the certain at the sort of things which the global technological system already told you you're supposed to be offended at because these are technical problems standing in the way of the system progressing. For example, um, having uh, borders within a nation is a technical problem because that impedes the flow of goods on the scale that the um, technological system itself thinks of, which is a, a global scale and even beyond that. Okay, so okay, can, um, I just, offended, can, I just, can I just fill in here? This is exactly why I'm a Marxist and I'm a Marxist from the radical right, okay? Marx didn't care about left and right. It is precisely Rousseau that has returned. People stopped reading Karl Marx some 40 or 50 years ago. They just ignore Marx completely. They completely misread him. Marx is a Jew to begin with. He, he hated Rousseau with a vengeance. What has then returned to fill the gap was Rousseau because Rousseau is the sort of infantile, you know, storyteller with a noble savage and all that bullshit. And he's basically then, they, they left us be taken over by Rousseauans, who of course are all full of this cultural resentment. It's all about resentment. What they then created is a worship of the welfare state, where Ameri the American left tries to copy the European welfare state. And the welfare state for them is nothing but a big tit. So the big tit gives you milk from out of nowhere, mystically, right? when you're a child and not one year old, right? But if you're a grown-up, you should know by now that if the milk comes out of the tit, which is the welfare state paying for everything on your grievances and your resentment, is that that milk has to come from somewhere. So the milk comes from people who do hard work. And the people who do hard work, essentially men, who are now the new right in American Europe, and then women have ended up on the left believing the welfare state will just magically produce whatever money they want whenever they want it. And therefore, the women don't marry the men any longer as they used in the past because the men were supposed to give them protection and provision because they, the women in our culture now are married to the state. They replace the husband with the state, thinking that the state will magically from out of nowhere print their money and give them money whenever they want to. Mm. So the connection between the woman reproducing and the man, therefore, protecting and providing for her so she can reproduce and give him the children he dreams about that can transcend him and survive him, that connection is completely lost in our culture. To me, that is a sign that there's a fall of civilization coming next. Because either we become aware of this fault and then we demontage the welfare state quickly 
to get the problem out of the way. We just say no more big tit. We go against the whole woke <laughs> resentment shit and say no more big tit. Taxes must be slashed. Civil society must be restored. A man and woman must go into a more natural relationship with one another when they respect each other and what they're good at. Otherwise, the whole fucking reproduction process is completely lost. And that's essentially the end of a civilization. Does that make sense for you that I'm a Marxist from the right? Um, I think this might be the first time uh, that I've heard that term, but um, I, I, I think so, yes. Uh, you know why? Because a Marxist from the right says that class society is fine. What isn't fine is a caste society. And the woke people want us to go back to caste. If you're born into any ethnic minority on the planet right now, and preferably also have an odd sexual orientation, you're doomed. You must stay with a woke fantasy of what you're supposed to be, to be some kind of a museal object to them the rest of your life. You have no human freedom left. The woke, resentful people are not interested in human freedom at all. They're just interested in keeping mm. a fucking nostalgic fantasy that is a lie. And it's a lie built on their own resentment. And they don't see the connection how, how they're now tied to the state, which they, of course, want to own so the state can keep on taxing hardworking people, which is actually the user in the Marxist thought that you must get rid of to create a revolution. So the revolution now is directed for the heroic workers against the resentful people who then take all the money from the state and are the woke people today to then get Rousseau out of the way and go back to the Marxist idea that the class society is preferable to caste society. Then we might have to accept the class society. I'm not a Marxist in the sense that I believe in a fucking communist utopia, but I'm a Marxist in the sense that I think a class analysis, especially in places like India, is absolutely preferable to a caste system. I have a question about India for both of you guys. From what I understand, India did go through a socialist period in the 70s, but then it reverted away from that, if I'm not mistaken. Is that indeed the case? Like, what exactly occurred then? Yeah, Indira Gandhi was highly influenced by European socialists like Olaf Palme here in Sweden. They were sort of a third force. They didn't want to be the Soviet Union or America. But Indira Gandhi basically copied a lot of Soviet economy models that actually don't fit India very well at all. In the 1990s, that was loosened up. And now with Modi in charge and nationalism back on the picture, at least now India is seeing its full potential. You will see India at a 10 to 15% economic growth rate every year for the next 20 years. That's where India is finally now heading. And so I would say India should never have socialism in the first place. Hmm. I, I'm sure Shad agrees on that. He might, he might have different opinions of where India is heading, but I'm sure he agrees on the analysis of India the last 50 years. Chad, let me know what you think. Uh-oh, I think there may be an interruption going on. We have to keep in mind that this is monsoon season, so there may be certain interruptions happening. Chad is still with us as far as the screen goes, the avatar goes, so hopefully we're going to have Chad back real soon. We should hear something back from Chad. But while that is going on, I have another question for Alexander. So there is a book that I really want to read. I only listened to interviews so far with the author Peter Zehan. I don't know if you heard of him. He wrote this new book called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. 
and uh, it's described over here that he maps out the next world, a world where the countries or regions will have no choice but to make their own goods, grow their own food, secure their own energy, fight their own battles, and do it all with populations that are both shrinking and aging. So I really want to dive into this as uh, I'm going to read it, but I don't know if you've heard of this author. And his book, yeah, yeah. I know him, and his yeah. book is crap. It's absolute <laughs> crap. He's five years too late running a very speculative theory that's blatantly untrue. Okay. The reason why we have globalization is because of digitalization. It was the machine that wanted us to go global. I wrote a book called The Global Empire, vastly superior to any of this shit that Peter Sian is writing. I wrote this book in 2003, just more difficult than Peter Sian's book books. Let's put it that way. Like I always say to my smart students, if you read a book that you bought as a pocket in an airport, it's probably crap. Is Yuval Harari crap or something like that? You know, it's just a pop book. It's not deep. It's not profound. It'd be dated like hell five years from now. So no, globalization is occurring because of the machine. Human beings are deeply local. Nothing makes sense to us unless it's local. Actually, anything that is beyond our own tribe is scary like hell to human beings. And that's why my philosophy is dealing with concepts like empire, nation, city, you know, concepts that are larger than tribe, fiendishly difficult, that need membranics, that need borders and limits to work. But this is why it's very, very important to reconstruct the philosophy of empire nation, which is actually basically Bronze Age philosophy more than anything else. But that's what we really need today. We need the philosophy on the social. Because human beings must be allowed to be local while they also must be challenged to be more than local. You know, the dream of loving the stranger. Fiendish are difficult for human beings to ever do. And maybe they never can. But if the machines can help them, all for the better. But the machine is going towards unity. It's going towards oneness. It's going towards conquering the world. And now with the satellites becoming God's eye, seeing us from everywhere, I think we're heading towards an AI or a symbiotic intelligence rather eventually that will mm. take over the world and run it for us. And that concept in our books uh, is called Synthios. God does not exist yet, but God is bound to happen, either as the devil blowing us up with the atomic bombs or as God in the sky, the sky God, which is Synthios, you know, basically running the world for us. And, and one simple little solution to this is that God will conquer outer space and leave us out of that race. Mm. Well, we get stuck on planets, uh, planet Earth, either as a zombie zoo or preferably as a human <laughs> zoo, depending on whether we still have a human soul or not. That's essentially the future. And I think Chad is back, by the way. Chad, I don't know if there was an interruption there, but you can hear us, right? And we can hear you. Uh, yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. Yeah, so I'm curious what you think about that. And I don't know if you're also uh, familiar with uh, Peter Zeihan's uh, book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, and whether you can uh, speak to whether he's right about uh, all of us now growing our own food, making our own stuff, as opposed to having this uh, globalized society. I admit I um, have not heard of this uh, book before, but um, the Thank proposal... God, it's crap, it's crap, Chad. It's real crap. Thank God, you read better books than that. Thank oh, God. I should get Peter and Alexander in the same stream together. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the proposal itself actually um, makes a good deal of sense. Um, growing your own food, um, which people actually have been doing um, here in Kerala. That was one 
um, side effect of the lockdown two years ago was that uh, many people here know how to grow their own food. Uh, for example, my wife's uh, parents were both farmers from rural Kerala. Um, you know, originally um, they, they later got jobs within the city, but they were originally, a you know, um, like tapioca farmer. Um, that was their background. So um, they have the skills, but um, people are too busy to, to use them until um, the lockdown happened. And suddenly they had the time. And, and some people were forced to because if they're working in um, the tourism industry, for example, there were no tourists um, effectively for months at a time. The beaches were, were shut down forcibly. Um, so uh, one interesting side effect of the lockdown here in Kerala was that um, the price of food actually went down, whereas it went up in the rest of the world. Um, and I think the difference was that here people had the skill, but um, in some places like the United States, uh, especially out in suburbia, um, it would take about, I don't know, 10 years. That was um, something which uh, Meta Nomad was on a podcast recently where he, he said um, that it takes about 10 years to learn the skill. Well, it's not a problem if you were raised a farmer as my wife's parents were. Um, but for your average American suburbanite who probably doesn't even have any land to work with, um, you know, it just wasn't even an option. So you had the opposite effect. And the price of food, um, I haven't been to America in about four years, but I've heard that um, routinely the price of things doubles or triples due to the inflation. So um, it is, you know, certainly true that it would be nice if people could um, focus on local production of things. The problem with that is that even though that's good for um, humans, it's, um, it works against the interests of the global technological system. And the irony here is that, um, as um, was mentioned just now, the, um, the technological system thinks in terms of unity in the sense of a type of globalism, which um, is you know, fundamentally opposed to any sort of um, uh, turn towards uh, local production, local interests, right? having uh, borders, even on a national level. It's, uh, it's opposed to that. But the kind of unity which it's pursuing is fundamentally anti-ecological. And you can only really understand why this unity is messed up if you do exactly the same thing which the global technological system is doing, which is thinking in, in global terms as much as that's possible. But if you actually do that, you'll find that instead of the sort of things which um, the SJWs are promoting, right, basically just reiterating on a linguistic level the underlying technical mandates, which originate from the technological system on a, on a purely abstract level of rationalization. Um, Jacques Rule noted that technique is not a bundle of physical machines. Before that, you have to have a certain um, rationalization on a systematic level um, oriented towards maximizing efficiency, productivity, and above all, predictability. You, can, you have to have the position of the machine within that system determined before the, the, the machine can um, actually um, uh, manifest itself physically, right? So you have this rationalization, which um, is simply reiterated within language by SGWs, and that's why there's a certain natural selection in, in their favor, right? They're rewarded because they translate it. The problem is, as I mentioned before, they don't actually understand that, um, what they're saying. And if you do, you'll find, as Dmitry Orlov mentioned, for example, that the global scenario right now is working um, uh, very much against the favor of the United States interests. For example, the uh, money printing that was mentioned earlier also, um, which you know funds the, the sort of welfare state dream, which I uh, was mentioned before, really the uh, essence of that is just more um, automation because um, the idea of not working really is just an unclear way of saying that more serious tasks such as um, production of food 
water, et cetera, should be handled by the technological system. You might have a surrogate activity left to you in the Kaczynski sense of the term. You know, you can, you know, um, I don't know, you could follow a football team, for example, because that's a harmless way to go through the power process. But you certainly cannot be even um, collecting rainwater um, on your mm. property in the state of Colorado, where I'm from, which is illegal. Well, the funny thing is, if you actually expand to global scopes of thinking, you'll find that the money printing, which the United States does now, is actually something which has already lost its foundation. Um, it only worked for a time. Because wait, wait, wait. Can, can I wait for a Shad, you're making a couple of axioms here that I disagree with. Number one, the global technological system is completely neutral to where anything is being produced. It has no idea of location whatsoever, doesn't care. What it cares about is that it, it fosters a market. The market is full of competition. And wherever something is produced cheaper or faster than anywhere else, probably that, 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 that place of production takes lead in the global market. You can perfectly well produce your food locally. The global technology system does not care. Let's not turn into something it's not. What, what you can do, however, if you feel or you, or you have this idea and you get a bit paranoid about things, is that you can have a border called nation states. You can have a membrane and you can within the membrane have a certain system, say a nation state. And within that member, you have certain rules. And then you put customs on anything that's being imported. You probably then retaliation will have customs on your exports in another market. So when globalization sort of falls down, it's just because the custom tariffs go up. But if the custom tariffs are lowered, then globalization kicks in. That's just how trade operates within markets like a nation state or in between nation states. And when it comes to the printing of money, again, money is not printed globally anywhere. There is no global bank. Money is printed by very local banks called central banks or federal bank systems. And what they do is that they print money with a political pressure on them to print money to save the assets of people temporarily. It's not a resilient system at all. What then happens is that you get fucking inflation. So you get inflation in America today because the American central bank, the Federal Reserve, printed too many U.S. dollars. You do not have the same inflation in other markets where you didn't print money the same way the Americans did. Therefore, the different currencies of the world are in competition with each other. And gladly, they're also not in competition with cryptocurrencies. They turn out to be more credible than the old sort of national currencies. But that's a market between currencies to be printed nationally, locally. There's no global currency anywhere to be found. So I, I would, these are two axioms that I actually would like to question. We might disagree or even strongly so, but I'd like to point that out. I'm pretty neutral to the global technological system. As I said, when you were out to before, Technology will always go towards global. Human beings will always strive towards local. And the struggle between local and humans, which you call ecology, and global in, in, in technology, which I call economy, will always be there. And somewhere in between the economic efficiency and, and the, the desire to have an ecology that is resilient is where we have to arrive. Does that make sense? I, I, it does make sense. I think, though, that the status of the inflation within the United States um, relative to this, um, the sense of the dollar is um, uh, something which has to be understood in the terms which um, Dmitry Orlov has uh, proposed, um, which is that um, the inflation you have within the United States actually is not primarily monetary inflation. This is the kind of inflation you learn about, say, in a high school economics class in which um, uh, the sheer supply and demand of uh, dollars um, um, is uh, such that 
if you print too many of them, you need more of them to buy the same thing. Okay, and this is a kind of inflation which um, I guess Jim Richards claimed um, uh, the Fed is pretty confident about its ability to control. They have the knobs to get more of it or less of it on demand. Okay, and um, they felt so confident about that ability to control it that um, they shut down everything for about two years, printed the money, and assumed that once. Everybody got um, some product, which they were forced to get. Uh, then they could open things back up. Um, but the result was um, that the uh, the manufactured crisis of 2020, which they just willingly um, implemented with the uh, assurance that it would be a temporary thing on the way to higher goals, um, um, it's, it was followed by a real crisis, which they're powerless to stop. And that's because the kind of inflation you have in the United States, according to Dmitry Orlov, is actually not primarily monetary inflation from an oversupply of dollars. It's actually structural inflation, um, which um, stems from a given currency having I, I less strongly dis- because- I, strongly, I strongly disagree as a, a trained economist. I strongly disagree. No, what happened was we printed money like mad 2008, 2009. That did not lead to widespread inflation because the deflationary pressure coming from the economies of China and India kept the whole ball rolling for another 10 years. Then we printed money again during the corona crisis. Now people started to get aware that monetary inflation will kick in sooner or later. The Ukraine crisis was the excuse. And because the Ukraine crisis tied off a large part of the world's oil and food, which are basic resources that usually inflation starts, and the oil and gas prices in Europe and then in America went through the roof, and therefore also food prices went up in the poorer parts of the world. So, for, for example, in Egypt, you starve right now. You cannot get bread any longer because Egypt has imported all the fucking grain it needed from Ukraine and Russia. So the Ukraine crisis became the excuse. And now the balloon popped because we have printed money for decades and created huge imbalances, enormous debts, especially from governments and from large corporations that are running on the idea that if you have managed to have huge debt, you can pay huge profits. And now these bubbles, especially real estate markets in Europe and America, will pop. And the crisis will last for years. So the inflation is fundamentally monetary inflation. The printing press has been running wild for the last 20 years. It was only a matter of time before it would occur. And the Ukraine crisis was the excuse. Well, if we were to accept uh, Dmitry Orlov's claim that this is structural inflation, which all I can do is um, rely on his word, he says that the uh, reason for that is that the context from which the dollar is emerging is structurally messed up. And the reason for that is it's um, the world's largest GDP. It's the world's largest economy, which just doesn't happen to produce anything. Okay? And um, as somebody from the United States, I understand all too well that the GDP is so high only because the services of so-called experts and professionals are so overpriced. You have, for example, the, um, I don't know, a $90,000 hospital bill, which uh, my father had for um, a few days in a hospital bed when um, he had a, a tooth infection or something. Okay, $100,000 for a couple of days in a hospital bed over a rotten tooth. Is a yeah, but wait, chat, chat, chat. This is strictly America. You have inflation running in most of Western Europe. You do not have massive inflation at the moment in Japan or Switzerland. Okay. Check the Japanese and Swiss economies and make a comparative study. We cannot sit here and pretend America is the world. <laughs> you know, American inflation is not the only inflation in the world right now. The excuse was the Ukraine crisis and the printing of money before that. And at the end of the day, inflation is neither monetary or structural. Inflation is strictly psychological. 
We raise price because we're scared of not having enough money tomorrow and because we can't get away with it. And then when the neighbor raises the price, you raise the price. And therefore, inflation is so fucking hard to beat once the gene is out of the bottle because it is a deeply psychological problem. And we will not get rid of the current inflation before we have mass unemployment. Because only mass unemployment would stop inflation from rising because you can no longer raise the salary when there's mass unemployment. So inflationary cycles are not stopped until you get mass unemployment, which is we're only seeing the beginning of this crisis. So I would say monetary structure doesn't matter. Inflation itself is psychological. But once it kicks in, it's because we probably fucked it up pretty well before the psychological reaction, which is a delayed reaction, starts to kick in. Hyman Minsky, I highly recommend to read Hyman Minsky, the best fucking economist of the 20th century. Mm. Deeply a- understood how dark humans are. I have a question regarding the uh, U.S. military. So I'm not sure how much the uh, current uh, global peace has been maintained by having a hegemony when it comes to U.S. military bases everywhere. Do you see that as uh, receding over time? And what effect would that uh, have overall, like on the welfare state of Europe, let's say, which I see as more or less depending on America being able to secure a lot of uh, Europe. So if that if well, America's that, that, not there, then what changed, happens? That has changed completely in the last three years. Even Sweden now is joining NATO and spending 2% of its GDP on, on the military every year. So Germany is now spending more than America. Mm. Think of that. Germany is spending more on military now than America does. That has changed because we got Russia and we don't know where Russia is heading, especially if Putin dies. I mm. live in Europe at the moment. We're terrified. So that's the reason why we're spending more on the military. Uh, as far as America's hegemony is concerned, have you heard of Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan? You fucking lost three wars. Come back to the ground. You cannot fight a guerrilla war with American soldiers because they think their technology is going to do the job for them, and it doesn't. You lost in fucking Afghanistan. Now live with that. American hegemony, yeah, you spend tons of money on the military, but you can't win the war. So... What's left then is military spending trying to get around the problem you need human soldiers to still win a war, apparently. So that's going to be the end game. However, if you spend money on the military, you can do like the Israelis do, who spend like 40% of the GDP on the military. They just make sure the military produces the next generation of technological gadgets. Mm. You know, so it depends on whether the military in the spare time between wars is being productive or if they're just sitting, rolling their fingers, wasting time. Mm. Considering that American soldiers are not the smartest guy, you know, guys from your population, they just have more gear than anybody else, is probably not what they're doing. But I, I would say that the military are at work at peacetime. If you manage it well, then they're a productive force in a society. But if the military are detached from being productive, then you're just basically doing, you know, you're basically running a psychiatric institution for the pseudo soldiers. <laughs> well, That's it's what also the American army probably is. It also apparently with the person who I spoke to who's in the army right now, things are getting pretty woke when it even comes to reducing the uh, standards for the men so that the female soldiers will be able to do certain tasks. I can tell you one thing. The Taliban will always be the shit of a woke army, no matter how much military equipment it has. (laughs) Guaranteed. Uh, The human soul is much stronger than technology. mm. But beyond the American military, though, when it comes to Europe now arming up with NATO and all that, do you see there now being a reduction in a lot of the cushiness that Europe was able to experience with its welfare system? Well, I I think we're moving towards a point where I see a major tax rebellion. 
people don't see it coming. But I think if we get a really big recession over the next few years with mass unemployment, people start asking themselves the question, what the fuck do I get for my tax money? You know, and the answer both in Europe and America be, I get nothing. You're just employing more bureaucrats and more administrators to fuck it all up with new propaganda projects where I'm supposed to be woke or whatever, and I pay for that. So I pay tax money to somebody who then uses the money to force me into North Korean cultural society, where they're basically then propagating to me what I should be, which I could figure out for myself, thank you. I think the tax rebellion is unavoidable. And once you look around at systems that do work better, like Singapore, Dubai, and Switzerland, you discover they have far lower tax rates than America or Sweden, as example. And I think that's where we need to look next. I think it's a very masculine, very phallic rebellion because it's going up against the sort of perverted feminine. And, and I think that's, that's why I'm interested in the very same mm. thinkers that Chad is studying, because I think there has to be some kind of a phallic tax mm. rebellion or something like that over the next 10 years spreading across the West, that could save us. That could save Western mm. civilization. Simply by understanding that if you put the fucking woke ideology into our own fucking army, we cannot defend ourselves against the enemy. We're done. Mm. I want to bring this back to Chad in a minute, but before that, I have one last question, well, for both Alexander and Chad, regarding this uh, question of what's going to happen with tax rebellion and wokeness. So one of the things that we're seeing today, you know, people have coined it the new right. Obviously, Alexander and Chad, as you know, I've had many, many people on here who are from the uh, reactionary right sphere, but they seem to be very big fans of uh, the Russian President Putin, and they seem to be big fans of having this overarching dictatorship be the one thing that will be able to solve all of our problems, even though, at least as I see it, they're inviting even larger problems down the line by wanting that kind of a uh, top-down authority to solve these problems. Where do you see their particular ideas going in the future if things get so bad from the side of the uh, woke people? Is there going to be a rejection of liberalism altogether and the creation of some new fascistic government? Or is that uh, not going to happen for whichever reasons you would say? Why do they go for Putin? Putin is so fucking corrupt. He can't even keep check of his own pocket holes, right? At least admire Xi Jinping in that case. I'm just waiting for Curtin's Jarvin to get a fucking phone call for Beijing and be employed by the Chinese. They want to create the perfect police state with a little boy fire at the top. That's the alternative. China's the alternative. India and the European Union are very similar to one another, and they're very different from China. I prefer to have a decentralized system because the decentralized system allows people like Chad and me and you, Lev, to think freely and act freely and do our shit. Because in China, we'll all be locked up. Mm. Definitely locked up. And a guy like Kurt Jarvin will crown the prince. So that at least admitted that Xi Jinping at least is a better hero than fucking Putin. Xi Jinping at least builds fucking motorways across this country, mm. and invests in infrastructure, and runs an empire. Putin is just the palest character you could ever think. No, but, but you don't by, even have a highway between Moscow and St. Petersburg. But, but, but by the way, Alexander, and I want to get Chad's opinion of this as well, but we have a comment here from Median Fire, which I think encapsulates the uh, mindset of a lot of uh, those people today. And much respect to Median Fire with his Google Chrome avatar. But he says over here, Putin, last man standing now when America is falling. Oh, so that's their, oh, that's their view. <laughs> don't live in, I've worked in Russia for 30 years. I work in Russia all the time. I work in the Ukraine too. I know these mobs. I know these mafias. I fucking work with them. 
Mm. They have no idea what they... They're sitting in America protected in fucking suburbia with their own little boyish fantasies about Putin. That's not the real Putin. Grow up. <laughs> Chad, any uh, any thoughts on that, on the uh, new right uh, possibly rising and having some kind of a, a dictatorship that they'd want to enact? I don't know. What do you think? If, um, you're talking about traditionalism as um, maybe um, wanting an alternative beyond the kind of democracy that you have in the United States. Um, I think a lot of that stems from the realization that democracy itself is um, not the most um, uh, advanced uh, form of government, if you have um, a sober analysis of the evolution of society from, say, um, Jean-Baptiste um, uh, Vico, Vico, uh, the great Italian philosopher of the 18th century, you know that democracy is actually the first stage of government, it's the first attempt, um, and later on you get uh, monarchy and then aristocracy. Okay? And the reason for that is that within the world of tradition, you realize that democracy is not even any particular... Uh, form of government. It's actually the failure to uh, achieve form that you have within, say, the Aristotelian understanding of matter, okay? um, within Julius Evola's interpretation of democracy. Um, it's simply the end result of losing access to the many symbolic forms that could be hermeneutically manifested within the world of tradition. Once you have uh, mechanization, for example, progress to the point that that's no longer possible. You're left with democracy, not because you you've um, advanced to that level, but simply because you've become incapable of the other forms. So if you see Putin as um, an alternative to that, maybe filling a placeholder for that, I, it's, I think it's perfectly understandable. I don't know that much about Putin as somebody who has not been to Russia, etc. But I do think that the recognition that democracy um, is, is more the negative failure um, to have the, the kind of form um, of uh, ruling that would have uh, been um, instantiated within the world of tradition through symbols like, for example, um, the, the symbol of uh, King Arthur drawing the sword as um, a symbol of legitimacy of rule. Um, insofar as that symbol could appear today, it would simply be seen as at best um, good entertainment about a fantasy of a vastly distant past, it could not be seen for what it really is. Okay. And I think that um, if nothing else, looking for alternatives to that um, a purely negative phenomenon of a failure for hermeneutical meaning, I think that it's, it's understandable. Hmm. Yeah. But I think these boys in America have just watched too many fantasy movies. So you don't understand monarchy at all. This is the thing. Uh, in my new book, Process and Event, coming out next year, I'm writing Beyond Sedicus. We're going back to the Bronze Age to study forms of government that are larger than tribe. The two innovations from the Bronze Age are empire and nation. They were perfected by the Persians and the Jews, and the Jews perfected the nation within the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire lasted for 2,200 years in various forms. You should compare that with the Egyptian empire that lasted for six years before it imploded, and Egypt never returned to its former self after that. Why? Because Egypt went for the dictator. And the Persians knew that if you install the dictator, you get the problem that the stupidity of the dictator is also where the whole thing goes. Stalinism, right? So what the Persians did before the Egyptians is that invented power splitting. And you split the power according to the nomadological triad that you find, for example, already in Hinduism. This is the Shiva and the Vishnu and the Shakti. So the, the, you have the matriarch, you know, women, 
women and children, the matriarch who you're responsible to, say the Supreme Court in the US Constitution. You have the chief or the king, the royal phallus. The royal phallus then executes. And then you have the priest, the law. And the law as an institution must be separated from the king. This starts with the separation of king and priest. In the Persian order, this was the Shah and Shah, and this was the Mobid and Mobid. The king of kings and the priest of priests. They had different capitals, different courts, must never meet, run their affairs in different realms. Meaning that the king of kings was the master of the muscle and the body. And the, the, the priest of the priest was the master of the mind. And you must never allow the priest to become the king. You must never allow the king to become the priest because then you get either the boy pharaoh or you get the pillar saint and you fail. This is Zoroastrianism. The first idea of an imperial order and imperial religion that ties an empire together. Then people can believe whatever they want on the lower levels, meaning you can also then implement universal human rights. It's nothing to do with democracy we think about it today. It's actual power splitting institutionalized. So you get a decentralized empire. That's why it lasted for 2,200 years. The Egyptian empire put a knotton at the top, appointed a boy, basically, to become both man, woman, priest, king, everything in one. He then worshipped the sun, and the sun worshipped him, and then the people of Egypt should worship him. And then when the Syrians and Hittites fucking attacked them, there wasn't even a soldier left in the army because they're big in fucking pyramids for him where he would live when he died. That's the madness of dictatorship. So I think you first must realize and go back to the construction of empire, the beautiful construction of the first nation that also was a religion, which is Judaism. And the other perfect example of that, which to me is still the best state we've ever seen is Japan. If you've got a nation and a religion that are one with one another, you've got a much better system of democracy. I agree with that. So democracy is not the end game at all. But I'm a Hegelian here. I'm saying that the American dream about a returning monarch is just as wrong as the attempt to nostalgically try to save democracy. They're both failed mm. systems. Well, I have a quick question about human rights, and then I want to get back to uh, Chad, and I specifically want to talk about peak oil, which I know that that's not the uh, everything in the, your philosophy, of course, but that is one. Well, that is one of the things that you have on your uh, YouTube page, first off, and that is something that I really wanted to get into as far as whether you see peak oil as still something that's going to happen and how it's going to affect everything. But before that, real quick about human rights, I'm not as familiar with what went down back then. I think a criticism that uh, more liberal-minded people would have towards anything that occurred, you know, before 100 years ago would be, well, back during those days, you know, the king and the priesthood and whatever, they had so much sway over the people that they could abuse them, use them, do whatever they want. And what they're most afraid of, not even with a dictatorship, but with a return to anything that they see as being traditional, is that all of a sudden you're going to have certain human rights when it comes to women's rights, when it comes to, I don't know, voting when it comes to not discriminating against people based on the color of their skin, they would see those things going away. And what I'm curious about is whether you see that as also being the case, should we return to certain more traditional models that would, let's say, incorporate the king and the priest and all of that? Can I just one little comment before I'd love to hear Chad's opinion? Sure. Universal human rights is nothing but a military strategy. That's all there is mm. to it. Instead of boiling your enemy's children in oil when you won the war, you allow the enemy to live, but live within your imperial order. So then your enemy can have his own fucking religion as much as he wants to. That's all there's to it. It started there. There's nothing else to it. 
So you don't think it would prevent certain discrimination from taking no, no, no. place? No, it's all about a more resilient strategy towards incorporating your enemy within your imperial order so the two tribes can live in peace with one another while killing each other all the time. It's an innovation. It's strictly a military priestly innovation. It's nothing and else. How would you say then regarding Japan, where from what I understand in imperial Japan, they had uh, certain things like using other people who are of a lower caste as uh, footstools, or in India when they were burning widows. So those examples, I would say, are you know on the lower rung of civilization, in my opinion, of course. Japan colonized Korea and Manchuria and made them subordinate to the Japanese people, yes, but they didn't boil them in oil. You have to remember that all the way up to 539 before Christ, everybody boiled their enemy in oil, and most people have remained boiling their enemy in oil when they won a war. Hitler, for example. So mm. Chad, back to Chad. Yes. Are you there, Chad? Yes, sir. Yeah, so, I agree that, um, yeah, if I may say real quick, I agree that human rights in the abstract would be something worth trying to salvage. The problem is that insofar as you talk of human rights in the context of modern technology, uh, much like democracy is actually a negative um, definition. You're not really talking about anything positive there. It's more like the failure for a particular form of the world tradition to manifest itself. It's really the same with democracy. Um, for Evola and Geno, um, um, the uh, uh, human rights are simply um, the um, claim that um, all people are the same, okay, or that any differences uh, amongst people are not to be recognized. That is, however, just a mandate of the technological system, which requires people to be uh, um, uh, interchangeable with one another insofar as they're valued um, only as cogs, which can be, um, which can be uh, used for different purposes of the technological system itself. So insofar as you talk about human rights within the context of modern technology, unfortunately, I think all too often you're really saying that everyone should have the same rights insofar as um, you should really be disregarding any differences among them insofar as you're treating them as cogs rather than as humans at that point well just real quick wouldn't you say that there would be a difference between treating people as if they are all the same versus giving people the same opportunity to succeed you know because there is uh, equality and then there's equity equity being that everybody's going to have the same outcome equality being everybody at least is given a fair shot to uh, do as much as they can in order to get to a certain level. Yeah, the word for that is meritocracy. Yes. And meritocracy is what the left have left. That's why I'm a Marxist. As a Marxist, you're a meritocrat. Mm -hmm. Give but everybody it... a fair chance. But of course we will be different, and some of us will succeed and some of us will not. But that, the word to defend here is meritocracy, and mm -hmm. that's what woke have thrown out. But then I don't see why we're throwing – well, I'm not saying we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater entirely, but I just want to make sure whether we can have a distinction between a society that is meritocratic and still has uh, human rights versus one where everybody is treated as if there's no difference between anybody and everybody has the same, uh, same endpoint. But this is the difference between meritocracy and striving for equity. Equity. Yeah. <clears throat> equity is Rousseau. And it always ends with madness. Mm -hmm. Woke is heading towards Pol Pot's Cambodia. But as far as human rights goes, 
why can't we have those same human rights of not discriminating against people based on uh, what uh, their uh, features are or whatever? And that at the same the time, the only having... human rights that exist, if, if yeah. it's a meaningful term, is that I do not boil my enemy in oil. All right. Well, with that, let's go to speaking of oil, let's go to peak oil. <laughs> so, uh, Chad. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what you see on the horizon when it comes to peak oil and how that's going to affect things? I'm very curious about this. I don't know that much, so go ahead. And everybody, subscribe and add a like. All right. The thing about peak oil is it is not a prediction about what could happen sometime in the future. Um, it's something which um, I find to um, um, the interpretation of John McCoy has already happened for the United States in the early 1970s has already happened for the globe in 2005. And not coincidentally, um, the Great Recession started three years after um, the globe um, hit peak oil in 2005. And uh, Dmitry Olev knows that um, the, uh, the Soviet Union also collapsed uh, three years after that nation. So this is something that's already happened, okay? Um, there are various ex uh, theories um, as to why it might not be something that could happen, but all of them violate the laws of ecological thinking. For example, you have the theory of abiotic oil, which is literally the claim that um, the earth um, is not a whole it's actually something which uh, we could ex extend beyond the borders of the earth to get more oil on demand it's the claim that um, more oil um, can come from outer space um, from uh, asteroids things like that and, and this is really just a violation of the laws of ecological thought more than anything else um, the question though on a hermeneutical level what happens after people, I think is maybe more interesting than the empirical question, you know, when exactly did it happen, um, et cetera. Uh, I think that on a hermeneutical level, um, what happens after you pass the point of peak oil is that the deep meme, as I call it, um, which is the shape of progress, the ascending arrow through which you interpret everything else, kind of in the same way that uh, Oswald Spengler talked about the prime symbol of a given um, civilization, much um, of him being um, I guess, um, historical rather than strictly ecological. For me, the difference is that um, the deep meme relies on the presence within the whole of a certain part. And once you pass a certain point at which it's no longer present, okay, you have things which were before truths turned into falsehood. And all of the um, things taken for granted within the United States when I was growing up, for example, yes, the end of the American dream. Everybody should be wealthier. Um, than their parents were. For Indians, the American dream is that um, anybody can um, uh, become much more wealthy just by immigrating to America, right? Um, you have different versions of the American dream depending on the nation, but it's still the expectation that um, the uh, rise in standard of living is basically just a reiteration of the underlying shape of the arrow, okay? And that was something which was true enough in the early years of um, fossil fuel extraction in which under ideal conditions, you could have a return of 200 units of, of energy for every un, uh, unit of energy invested. Um, but by the time you get to the early 2010s, you have um, the, uh, the fracking within the United States actually producing something more than oil. And you may sure noted. Wait, wait, so, so, sorry, Chad, can you repeat that? You're, you're getting bad signals, so can you please repeat the part about fracking one more time? Oh, yeah, sorry about that. The, uh, no the rain has uh, really picked up. Um, the, the, the fracking um, bubble of about 10 years ago was marketed as um, a means of 
America achieving energy independence, right? They had phrases like Saudi America. But in reality, the uh, kind of um, resources being um, um, extracted were more like lighter fluid. And Dmitry will have noted that you can only um, use that in, say, trucking um, if you uh, combine it with uh, heavy oil from Russia. So the real situation is that America can survive without Russia for only a few months, but Russia can survive without America basically indefinitely because um, the United States basically just prints dollars and then buys stuff from the rest of the world um, with the um, guarantee that the dollars have value because they're coming from the world's largest economy. As I mentioned earlier, it's the largest economy, which um, just doesn't happen to produce, uh, which just doesn't happen to produce anything and only seems to be as valuable as it is because the services within the a nation are so overpriced. You have the medical bills, for example, um, that are um, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars for fairly uh, basic um, uh, uh, things. Um, you have education, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a bachelor's degree, um, which um, then has to be supplemented by a few graduate degrees, and even then probably can't get you a job. Okay? So you have this illusion of value within the American dollar, which is no longer even backed up by fossil fuels. Now it's simply um, um, standing on the foundation of one of the countersense objects, which presuppose fossil fuels, but it's no longer true. It has lost its truth value because the presence of fossil fuels has diminished due to especially the United States passing its own peak in the early 1970s. Okay, So the end result of living in a hermeneutical context in which um, truth is turned into falsity, but you don't realize that, um, the end result of that, I think, is going to have to be a memological shift of some kind in which the symbol through which you process your own surroundings will have to be something other than the, um, the, the ray of fossil fuels. Uh, John Michael Greer speculated that an era of salvage could follow in which so much industrial material which um, had been produced in earlier times no longer really, um, it can no longer be produced, but it's still present and it can be repurposed and you have um, the ability then to turn that into the new symbol of meaning. This becomes for me the bell curve of, um, of memory in which you're living with the after effects of the fossil fuel age with the realization that the shape of time is such that the um, peak um, had its, uh, it lies definitively in the past. Everything from that point onwards is decline, but you can still work with that kind of more progress could happen. Mm. Alexander, your thoughts? Um, when solar and nuclear will happen, and they will probably happen because they're going to start taxing fossil fuels heavily. So the, the, uh, I call it the peak fossil fuel. And the peak fossil fuels already happened. I agree with Chad's historical analysis. Energy, though, is not the only part of the economy, but it is the basics of the economy, together with food and some other stuff. We'll get the basics, right? So that, that has to work. Otherwise, if you get more expensive energy within a system, you will have, you, you'll have to consider like you've taxed the entire system in that case. It'll be costlier. But if wind and solar are complemented with nuclear, which is probably going to be the universal solution, both in China, in America, and Europe eventually, then that is probably where we're heading. And then the real question is, will we then have to do with the sort of nuclear fission energy we have today forever, and that's all? Or will there be fusion power plants around in, say, the next 50 to 60 years? 
And that question is essentially a design problem, meaning that if AI can do anything useful for us to keep the whole machine going for another generation, that would be actually to design the perfect chocolate box so we could actually start doing fusion power. And if we do fusion power, we'll solve the energy problem and the cost problem of energy for the foreseeable future. So that, that's essentially where technology is at. We don't know that yet. We don't know we're heading in 50 years' time. The most likely scenario says that the mix of wind, solar, and nuclear, that will replace the more heavily taxed and therefore a, you know, redundant fossil fuel economy, will be costier. And in that sense, Chad is right. It's not that the economy is going to implode. Thank God for America, it's exporting fucking Disney movies like mad to the rest of the world. The American economy is still a successful export economy. It wasn't all about the oil. But energy is still and will always be the fundament mm. of the economy. So the cost of energy is absolutely essential to the overall success of an mm. economy. In the and, and, of course, and of course, where you take that energy from is, of course, essential to the ecology. Mm. So you want to have a resilient ecology, which we all want to subscribe to, then the whole fossil fuel economy is over and done with anyway. But I think we're waking to that to, this, to the extent that the taxation of that whole system is going to go through the mm. roof. It's also an easy way for governments now to morally make a lot more money. In the uh, meantime, though, do you agree with uh, Chad's assessment that the kind of oil that the United States has, that there is a difference between that and Russia, where he sees Russia as being much more resilient over time because of that? Well, you can just make peace with fucking Venezuela, go there and dig up their oil. It's as dirty and as awful as the Canadian, the Russian oil, but that's the oil. If you want it, you can go and get it. It's Venezuela, the Orinoco River Delta. It's the biggest oil reservoir on the planet. And Canada is second. And China, Russia comes further down the list. Mm. You know? So if you really want the oil, yes. But we're not living in an oil-dependent economy the way we did. And oil is being phased out way too slowly, but it's being phased out because everybody's realized that it's not sustainable in mm. any way. It is both But, polluting and it's also a resource we're making redundant. Before uh, my uh, final question, and I don't know how you guys are doing on time. Alexander, please let me know. How are you doing on time? I'm fine because I'm having a conversation with you and Chad. And I love Aww. It. Aww, thank you so much. And Chad, how are you doing? Oh, doing fine. But uh, to be honest with you, it's uh, beginning to cut out a bit because of mm. the, uh, the, the rains are getting much heavier. All right, so we're going to be uh, concluding pretty soon, but I want to have a, one more question regarding the uh, oil situation in uh, the United States. So there is uh, something I've been noticing from the Biden administration that uh, he shut down the uh, Keystone pipeline that was going uh, you know from uh, Alaska and there is you know among the more conspiracy minded people out there this idea that a lot of this industry is being intentionally shut down so as to weaken the American economy and that there's a fifth column situation going on in the US I don't know how much you've been following any of that stuff whether any of that stuff even matters but uh, I am curious what you're uh, what you're seeing right now when it comes to not what's going to happen but what was currently happening with America's energy so uh, let me know if I'm devil's advocate here I would say that the guys who are going to make money from wind and solar and nuclear are the guys who invent wind solar nuclear technology either America is a part of that race and American technology companies are at the forefront of that struggle or else America will have to import everything that deals with wind solar nuclear technology in which case America will be poor. So mm. the question is who develops this first? The Indians and the Chinese get this. Therefore, they're at the head of the race. The Japanese and the Koreans are in the race too. The Europeans are also getting it. 
that if you develop wind, solar, nuclear before anybody else, you're also likely to be producer of the technology itself. That's where the money is to be made. And either America is part of that race or you just stay with the fucking stinking oil forever and become poor. It's America's decision to make. Hmm. And where do you see countries like Germany going? Where right now, from what I've read, they're going back into coal because the uh, Green Party people ended up getting rid of uh, nuclear energy. So Because they yeah. do wind, solar, and Russian gas. And they couldn't. They were exposed. So they take off the Russian gas and go back to coal because they refuse to build nuclear power. The French mm. build nuclear power. All of Eastern Europe building nuclear power. They know that without the nuclear power in the mix, you're done. Mm. So in Europe, you're going to see that the countries that invest in nuclear power now will be the wealthiest countries over the next 40 to 50 years. That's how important energy is for the overall economy. The people who do not invest in nuclear power will be dirt poor because they will have to import the electricity from the people who have nuclear power plants. And uh, Chad, what do you think of nuclear power? Well, I um, can say about solar that um, it's questionable whether it's actually an alternative to fossil fuels. You have the um, claim by people like John Michael Greer that the amount of energy it takes to produce the solar panel, and it's very difficult to find information on this because um, there's, quite frankly, a lot of money to be made from this, especially uh, from having um, the Democrats pass enormous um, spending bills um, to uh, basically um, transfer this money from the um, United States to certain companies in China, as well as um, donors to the Democratic Party. So it's very hard to find information on this. But according to um, the estimation of John Michael Greer, it takes about as much fossil fuel energy in total to produce a solar panel as you will eventually get back from it. And the irony is that um, I've been maybe criticized over the years for saying that, but um, I actually live with um, a solar panel at uh, my wife's parents' house. I didn't even realize it was there for the first few years because it's so rarely functional. Okay, It was a few years of, of being here before I realized that its purpose is to uh, provide a hot shower by um, turning the, um, the, the sunlight, which there's quite a lot of here. We live just uh, barely north of the equator, so we're living in a tropical area. Okay. Um, there's um, still so little um, of that uh, converted into useful energy in my own experience that it's maybe 20% of the time, maybe not even that, that you turn that uh, tap and you actually get a hot shower. Okay? And even then you might get a couple buckets. Okay? In India, we shower with bucket rather than with a shower head because, you know, for precisely this reason. Um, so it's questionable to me as somebody who um, lives with solar energy, actually, um, uh, that it could be considered an alternative, let alone something which could uh, provide a first world standard of living mm. to the billions of people on the earth that is often uh, promoted as. Okay? And um, I think that this is something which also suffers from the problem of maybe uh, reproduction, you could call it. Uh, certain natural resources like um, cattle, for example, they naturally reproduce. It's not a problem of getting more cattle from other cattle. Okay. Um, rabbits, it's, it's, it's uh, something which you'd have to stop them from, from reproducing, right? But um, with uh, solar panels, you can actually get more solar panels from other solar panels. Ultimately, you have to be presupposing the existence of fossil fuels. So it seems to me that um, this is just one more countersense object, which is true on a hermeneutical level, so long as the presence of that particular soma is given. If you remove the presence I don't, of, of fossil fuels as the somatic foundation of that worldview, I don't even think it makes sense to talk about mm. solar panels. And I suspect that nuclear falls into the same category. There's a lot of talk of the um, 
the the nuclear reactors in um in the Ukraine, right? That um are um actually um um so far past uh their um uh prime, if you will, that um Dmitry Orlov was uh, mentioning that they have to be shut down. I'm not in uh, I don't know too much admittedly about that, but I can go on his word as 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 um Hearing some sort of confirmation that uh, nuclear Tad, sounds Tad, to me Tad, like get, another get, get, yes. get, Let's get the facts right here. Over 50% of all electricity <laughs> in France is produced by nuclear power. And it's a constant energy flow. The, the reason why wind and solar are so unreliable is because the wind power you only get when there's blowing wind. And the solar power you only get when the sun's shining and you've got a clean fucking solar panel. That's why we need to be skeptical about them, but they can produce huge amounts of energy when they work. But when it comes to nuclear power, most of the world today runs on huge amounts of nuclear power electricity. That's a fact. So I don't want to go about Ukrainian nuclear power plants as used as examples here. They're not the future nuclear power. Let's be fair here and let's, let's stay with the facts. Uh, any uh, comment from there? And if not, we're going to move on to another very uh, interesting thing that's related to this. So, Chad, let me know. Uh, I think that, um, the hermeneutical question of whether something is a countersense object founded on the sum of fossil fuels, again, um, I think that that's something which um, should be considered. Okay, um, whether something makes sense like the solar panels in the context of fossil fuels, okay, or whether it's um, actually a, a, a substitute, okay. Okay, but uranium is a geological fossil. Let's put it that way. Hmm. So the other question I wanted to ask uh, in relation to this has to do with uh, Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion and all those people. So, you know, we all want the environment to be better off. But the question is, what exactly is this particular group doing? What exactly is its goal? Alexander, you're living in Sweden, so you have a sort of a connection <laughs> with whatever's okay, okay. going on with them. Chad yeah. Hag is serious about the environment. Yes. He's a great philosopher on deep ecology. He's doing his work. He's young. He's fantastic. Read Chad Hogg. Greta Thunberg, oh, God, she's a fucking fart. Right? She's a joke. She's not interested in climate. She's not interested in environment. She didn't, she's interested in her own fucking big ego that she inherited from her mother. I know her mother. Right? I know the family. And Greta Thunberg is not at all concerned with saving the planet. She's just interested in being a fucking post-Christian moral warrior who thinks she's, 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 she's superior to everybody else. And the people who follow her are of the same kind. These are the woke trolls, and we don't need them. What is the goal that, beyond any egoism, may be the reason why Greta was put on the stage in the first place? Is there anything because organized behind this? Because it became this? a fashion. They're into fashion, and because Greta Thunberg is a fashion, she will evaporate and die. Because we're tired of her and we're sick of her, she's over. She's nothing but mm. a media icon. She's nothing but a fashion item. But if you play the fashion game, which the woke people do all the time, you're not going to be around for very long because there's no depth to what you do. You're completely superficial. And she's nothing but being superficial. She's running around with slogans pretending she's fucking Sean Dark ready to be burned at the stake. That's what she thinks of herself. It's just Christianity again. Mm. I hate fucking Christianity, right? Oh, God, it's awful. Mm. No, she, she's not even part of the solution, and she's being treated as a joke, rightfully so. 
what about the people in Davos? So that goes back to the whole conspiracy that people see and, you know, there being these various meetups where they talk about the Great Reset and people imagine the worst. I may lean more on the side of this being an excuse for all these rich people to get together and for it also to be a kind of fashion. Curious where both of you guys stand on Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum. All Great Reset. I say is Bono. They're all Bono. <laughs> no depth, superficiality, fashion. Jumping from one fashion mm. to the next with fashionable places to go. You think U2's concert helped Ukraine in Kiev? No. It was just about Bono's fucking ego. It always is. Mm. Chad, would you agree? I think that um, all of this is an example of the psychology of leftism, as Kaczynski noted. Um, you have... Um, um, observable within the environmental movement, what should not happen to the critique of technology. You noted that if um, the critique of technology ever became as fashionable in um, SGW circles as um, environmentalist uh, causes already have been, that would guarantee that nothing would be done about it. And this was precisely because um, the relation between the global technological systems underlying rational needs and the linguistifications which the SGWs later translate them into is such that people are actually rewarded um, on, on basis of natural selection um, for not understanding what they say. Okay, and you find this with um, the, um, the image of um, uh, the world's um, elites um, taking private jets to uh, global warming uh, conferences, right? Um, they clearly do understand what they are talking about, but they still realize that they have to say it. And by the way, um, insofar as the global technological system um, favors this sort of environmentalism. It's only because it is selectively providing outlets for them to increase regulation. Okay? So you don't hear calls for less uh, consumption, right? Uh, because that uh, would go against the interests of the global technological system maximizing its productivity, right? And also um, the sort of control that uh, you can gain over people um, who become dependent on that sort of consumption which uh, of products produced by the system itself. Okay, so you don't hear any environmentalist um, uh, talk about reducing consumption, but you do hear it about fossil fuel emissions uh, because that is a way for the global technological system to regulate more, to control more, and that's the real purpose of it. That's why um, it doesn't really matter whether the people promoting it that you have mentioned understand what they're saying or not. Do you see the global technological system as being an existent? I can't even say that word. Existential threat to our w freedom, to our way of life, or again, do you see them as being kind of like Alexander was talking about, uh, just these people that like to pretend, like to have this fashion and drink with each other, and ultimately, it's a paper tiger. Wait a second, though. Global technological system is one thing. It's mm. technology. Right? You're yes. talking about people here. Yes, just How to be specific. How do you throw the people into the, the Davos people are not the global technological system? Yeah, well, that, that's what I'm trying to find out here. How yeah. much bite do you those particular people have? Yes, yes. So you have an elite of power brokers, an old elite, industrial entrepreneurs, politics, and media. Okay, they're up against a new netocratic elite, consisting of the technology wizards out there, now also the censocrats coming, for example, the Chinese version of Xi Jinping, 
And then the third one, the protopians. If you read Bardo's Sedicus, you'll figure out that this is a paradigm shift. It's a shift of elites, and it's got to get bloody and messy. So what these guys are trying to do is that they're going to take, try to take the environment issue and then sort of tame it and domesticate it under capitalism to then exploit it to make money from it and also control people even more through political methods. Actually, the internet is working against that. So the internet is the possibility for us, for example, with crypto and with blockchains and with other decentralizing technologies, is to fight that system, but to fight the people in the system. The global technological system itself, of which the internet part, is neutral. Technology mm. is always neutral. Technology is always a pharmacon. Technology is not the god. No, no, no. Human beings are the ones we're talking about. So if you talk about the Davos elite as representing the unity of the old institutions, yeah, they're out there and they try to use Greta Thunberg or whatever they got as a fashion icon to then look hip again and be relevant, and they're not relevant at all. That was well said. So speaking of God, I want to get to God as well. I wonder if before God, though, if there's anything else that uh, we would want to touch on. Oh, there is one thing having to do with uh, the uh, possible decline of civilization, which is the question of virtual reality, which I alluded to earlier. So like I said before, we uh, may have a, a very interesting guest coming in in a couple of uh, weeks. Uh, that's going to be Alex Stein, 99. And he was in this panel. No, he was in this uh, town hall meeting where he was proposing what he intentionally did as a parody of what he sees a lot of people propositioning today, which is let's just take all these people, all these useless eaters, and put them in these VR pods and just connect them to the uh, metaverse, and there they shall live forever and ever. How much of this do you see as just being another fashion? How much of this is you, do you see as being real? Well, he's talking about how you create an underclass and sedate them. What do you think? I'm a Marxist. Chad, what do you it's think? It's just total yeah. cynicism. Well, I think this is an unclear way of talking about the ecologically impossible object um, of universal automation, once again. Um, the idea is that uh, people can continue to be consumers even if they don't have jobs. The problem with that is it, it entails a fundamental contradiction, okay, which will go unnoticed Okay, um, by the people, because the um, system that um, is promoting this ultimately is interested in um, being uh, devoid of humans. Okay, so we're talking whether the global technological system is the wealthiest elites or if it's something beyond them, something fundamentally inhuman. Well, for Jacques Ellul, uh, technology in itself is neither a bundle of physical machines nor even the humans who seem to control. An underlying abstract system of rationalization, teleologically oriented towards maximizing efficiency, productivity, and predictability. And it reaches a certain point at which humans become unnecessary. The um, fantasy of uh, Ray Kurzweil that um, the first thing um, the uh, super intelligent uh, computers will do after the singularity is find some way to keep us alive forever, but uh, simply binging on um, virtual experiences of hard drugs and whatever junk food we want and also virtual sex with perfectly um, generated AI generated uh, prostitutes. Okay, that's a fantasy. Um, if you re actually reach that point, humans will become extinct because they were always something of an inhibition um, or a, a technical problem which the global technological system dealt with 
by making them more and more inhuman. And you find this with the VR also. Um, it's kind of an extreme example of this. But even if that might be temporarily employed, it certainly will not be um, tolerated longer than necessary. I totally agree with Chad here. So if it isn't better than opioids, I prefer the opioids. <laughs> you know, it's just it's not deep. It, these, these are Ray Kurtzfeldt. He doesn't even have a fucking sex life himself. He's not even human himself. It's just a postponement on his own life that he should live right now that he's talking about. You know, if he wants to be a sedated fucking underclass zombie, fine. But he's not human. This is Aristotelian. I'm talking about Aristotelian Renaissance all the time. What the fuck happened to the human soul? What happened to the male soul? What happened to the female soul? And that's fundamentally where I would agree with Chad, is that it's an ecological question because humans are ecological creatures and we have souls. And when these people, when these sort of Disney factory people present these ideas, how you're going to sedate the underclass and put them to sleep, that, hey, I'm not part of that. I don't want to be a zombie. I'd rather go kill myself. This is just a question of human decency. These guys mm. are idiots. Why do we even listen to them? And by the way, we have a super chat from Alex S. Speaking of which, as we're going to be approaching the subject of the human soul and God to uh, end this wonderful stream with, uh, Alex's question is this. For five U.S. dollars, the most valued form of thinking is materialistic determinism. The logical extreme of this thinking is, quote, perfect knowledge of all nature. And then he asks, is this a fallacy? Yes, because quantum physics just killed it, darling. Okay, <laughs> Determinism is dead and over philosophically. And the determinism in determinism couple is a falsehood. They're both false. Determinism in determinism are local qualities in our universe. They're not global qualities. The universe itself is not deterministic or indeterministic. It turns out the universe can only be described as transdeterministic. So get over it. And whether it's material or any other emergence we're talking about, the different emergences that have occurred throughout the history of the universe must be respected as their own vectors. That's why we're doing emergence vector theory. It's called transcendental emergentism. It doesn't have neither mind nor matter in it because mind and matter are just different emergence vectors. They must be understood separately. Okay, Ch so mm -hmm. that's all there's to it. It's just a dead question because the question died 70 years ago. Chad, do you agree with Alexander? I don't know that I understand the question fully, but um, if it's a question of whether the whole can be known, okay, and whether that has anything to do with materialist, uh, determinate, uh, de um, materialist determinism, I think that uh, John Michael Greer's claim in his earliest book, um, uh, Paths of Wisdom, that um, there was a method for uh, knowing the whole, which precisely went beyond the representation of what we find within nature. We, in nature, you find um, a plurality of givens, okay? And ecological thinking largely is understanding how those work together. There's immense value in that. But um, if you take it far enough with magical means, you're talking about, as you, we're talking already now about God, okay? And um, symbolizing the whole um, within the hermetic tradition um, is the experience of one's unity with all things. This is not really the God, by the way, of the Abrahamic religions, more the kind of God you find within Hinduism. Within Hinduism, you have this idea of um, uh, Brahman as um, in maybe an abstract um, uh, negation sense being 
um, not this and not that, okay, particular things that you see, but that's precisely because it is both, it's inclusive both. And the uh, promise of hermetic magic that you can actually experience rather than contemplate that theoretically, I think that that does provide a way to know the whole, but precisely beyond anything having to do with materialism, or I would even argue determinism. Hmm. Well, this is. I think, a very, I, think oh. you need, I think you need to put the timeline in there. The guy who did transdeterminism first was Hegel, and Hegel said the past is always a necessity, but the future is always a contingency. Live with that. That means the hmm. logos, mathematics, etc., is always in the past, whereas the pathos, what we feel towards the world, is always in the future, and we're stuck between these two, and we can never find an attitude that unites them. We can only be mythical in our description of ourselves. And that's a beautiful way of describing Hegel and his predicament with the human being. His absolute knowing is that you arrive at that point and you cannot get beyond it. Chad, any comment about Hegel? I don't know if uh, there is. Well, a, it's oh, interesting that Hegel was. I, I, I think it's uh, relevant that um, Hegel was himself influenced by the Hermetic tradition. There's certain notebooks discovered in which he has uh, diagrams which were only known to other uh, uh, practitioners of, of that form of magic. So um, it's interesting that he would be uh, apparently reaching that conclusion within that tradition itself. Hmm. I agree. It's true. Well, uh, speaking of magic, and I want to get to uh, God just in a second here, but uh, speaking of magic not talking about this like a philosopher, I'm just going to talk about this you know, very simply over here. I think one thing that may uh, dis, uh, well, th that you may disagree with uh, Alexander about and vice versa is exactly what are we talking about when we talk about uh, magic? Is there, for example, a, uh, a, certain a certain quality that human beings can get to that we are not at right now and that maybe with artificial intelligence and technology it's going to be even harder for us to reach towards where certain limitations that we consider to be in our life as far as what we're able to do, whether we're able to, I don't know, I'm just going to be very romantic now okay, and say, read okay, each other's get, minds. Get, you get it. it. You get it. Powers. Okay, magic yes, powers. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. So Rasternism invented the word Magi, and Magi is another word for priest. They have many different priests in Zoroastrianism. So at least we got where it started. Um, my one-liner here is that yesterday's magic has the potential to become tomorrow's technology. So if magic inspires you to create technology, then magic has some sense to it. But to think that magic is some kind of a shortcut, so you don't have to do the hard work, is a boyish, infantile fantasy. You will only get to your conclusion, your set goal, another name for that is your God, you will only get to where you set out to go by doing the hard work and walk all the 40 years through the desert. That's the lesson of life. To believe that there are shortcuts to get to, to your goals is only what an 11 year old believes before you've started fucking women and understand the impossibility of fucking mm. a woman right. I completely agree, Alexander, but I'm going to add one more thing to it before Chad responds, which is when you're talking about going into the desert, I would say that that is a lot harder than, let's say, programming something. Not to say that programmers aren't very talented, but when it comes to sitting down, meditating, and using your mind. I am very curious about whether it's the case that most people don't just have a don't have enough time in the day or use psychedelics as a crutch 
while really if they were to sit down and meditate, we would be able to figure out that we are capable of certain things that uh, science today would consider to be impossible. And I know I'm reaching here. No, but just, no, I, th yeah. I think the point in spending 40 years on something is to be much more thoughtful once you then start using it. Anybody I, uh, has sure. a shortcut and achieves, for example, technological breakthroughs, your shortcut will become a fucking Ray Kurzweil. That's the problem. I, That's I why it takes 40 yeah. years to do something with wisdom. I completely agree, but I think we may be speaking past each other. Just so you understand what I'm talking about here. If there were certain abilities that, let's say, uh, you know, aboriginal human beings talked about having, whether it comes to sensing when the hunting party happens to be, uh, you know, happen to catch something very far away. I'm talking about things that we would put into the category of fiction. We would put into the category of fantasy. And my question is... And this would be more for Chad, uh, because within Hinduism, they talk about Siddhi, certain magical powers, if you will. How much of this is just boyish fantasies and how much of this is real? And again, Alexander, just so you understand where I'm coming from, I don't see any of this as being some shortcut. I see psychedelics as being somewhat of a shortcut. I see this as, if it exists, coming from intensely hard work and hard training. But I don't know, Chad, what do you think of when it comes to Seedhees, magic powers and all that, and the reality or fantasy of that? Well, there certainly is talk within Hinduism of something like that um, in a way that I feel you don't find with um, someone like John Michael Greer. Greer notes that um, if somebody um, is talking about magic as the manipulation of physical matter, um, that is a sign that that particular person, according to him, doesn't know what magic is. Um, so the Harry Potter idea that magic is um, getting broomsticks to fly, that for Greer is misunderstanding what um, magic is as something having to deal more with um, the um, spiritual uh, uh, relation to symbols um, within consciousness than the manipulation of physical objects. However, within Hinduism, you find a slightly different interpretation with figures like uh, Swami Prabhupada, a devotee of Krishna, who claimed in um, a series of talks in New York City, um, now known as uh, the Path of Perfection, that uh, devotees of Krishna could eventually uh, do things like uh, create planets, is what he claimed you could create a planet. Um, and that is an extreme um, example of, of manipulating physical matter. So. Um, the truth, to me, I think, maybe lies somewhere between those two options. And certainly something that might be confirmed within India, where magic is much more widely practiced than it would be in um, the, the United States. Hmm. So I know, Alexander, where do you stand on that very uh, far-reaching version? I am sick and tired of human beings because human beings love to believe in the supernatural. There is nothing supernatural. Zoroastrianism's big break with Hinduism was precisely when Zoroaster said, let's throw all the supernatural bullshit out of this religion, including it from all this bullshit, so we can go back to nature and be cultural beings within a nature that does exist. That principle is called Asha in Persian philosophy, it's called Tao in Chinese philosophy, and that's the principle I, I'm aligned to. And uh, yeah, women believe in astrology and boys believe in magic. How Why? You... Because to excite their boring lives and put some sparkle onto their lives. Right? How... But at the, at the end of the day, the true magician is the technologist, at least invent something that never existed before. Because the only thing mm. we've done in the past 5,000 years is inventing new technologies. We haven't done anything else. We haven't improved on ourselves. Our brains are smaller than 5,000 years ago. 
We're more stupid than we ever were before. But the only thing that has yeah. happened in the past five thousand years is technological development for good or bad. But that's and just, just to be clear, is. how yeah. do you define the supernatural? Well, you do because you believe in it, right? I don't. I believe there is nature, period. And nature can be explained with the different laws of the different natures that exist. Well, I can give you just a very quick example of when I'm talking about supernatural, what I mean. And maybe it's not called supernatural then. What it is to me is, at least in my own meditation experiences... Like I say uh, before, I am able to generate three-dimensional objects when I close my eyes and I'm able to see them. Whatever that is, I just know that not that many people are capable of doing that. And since I was able to do that, I see, oh, this is something that human beings are capable of. To me, yeah, exactly. that's interesting. That's my point. That's my point. I said it at the very beginning of this conversation, Lev. Yesterday's magic may inspire you to create tomorrow's technology. Now, if you have a fantasy like that where you take drugs and you're meditating... No body, drugs. Okay. No it, drugs. No, no, okay, but if you're not doing anything with it, then it's not interesting. Okay, first of all, I wouldn't say that it's not interesting if I'm able to generate something inside my mind, spin it around, create certain structures that I'm able to see when I close my eyes. To me, that's pretty interesting. I think for that you, that, yeah, but not yeah. for me. You bore me to death right now. Next. Oh question, Lord. Please. Okay. No, hold on. Before the next question, Chad, any comment on that uh, kind of super supernatural? Well, um, it's interesting that um, the supernatural understood on ecological grounds as one's relation to an entire ecosystem of spirits um, is something which the global technological system itself uses all the time, despite the um, inherent um, um, uh, uh, contradiction between the two. And we find this with advertising, for example. Um, in advertising, you convince people to spend money they don't have on things that they don't want and which won't make them happy. And you're only able to do that by manipulating um, certain symbols which they're already predisposed to, uh, be, um, in, to be affected by, right? And this is something which you find um, even the global technological system itself, which once again, there's nothing human about it. There's nothing even ultimately physical about it. It's, an, it's just an underlying system of rationalization still on grounds of natural selection. Okay, They have found it useful to um, perform this because the humans who are affected by it are inherently tuned in to those sorts of relations and um, uh, even more so by the people who uh, claim that it doesn't exist um, within, you know, the uh, the uh, Western nations where um, in the United States, for example, uh, the talk earlier about um, whether we could have the uh, figure of the priest and the king combined as it had been with the Pope as Julius Ebola critiqued. Well, that's not even possible in America anymore because both priest and king have basically vanished through secularization. But we still have this sort of uh, uh, manipulation of human consciousness through magical symbols functioning um, um, perfectly well, despite that fact. Yeah, but that is, have you studied René Chirard? I, I think, I think your, 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 your philosophy is great, Chad, because it's dark, and I love dark ecology, but it, there's Hobbes on one end and Chirard on the other, which you might want to add to your reading list. Uh, with Girard comes the idea that we're all doing mimetic rivalry all the time. And why advertising works is simply you put an idol there, and the idol does something, and then you want to copy it, you want to do it because the idol does it. That's why advertising works. 
And it's absolutely, you're absolutely correct. It, it, it buys into human spirituality and plunders it. That's what it does. But it plays into the darkest part of the human soul, which is mimetic rivalry. You compare yourself with your neighbors. Your idol is doing certain things. You do what the idol does before the neighbor does it, and you feel good about yourself. You feel superior to your neighbor. That's how human beings operate. You know, that's why I love Hobbes. That's the way they operate. That's just, it's only reflected in the system's relationship towards human beings. It's their mm. own nasty darkness you see being exposed. Girard is brilliant. I, I, I highly recommend Girard's studies. And he's, people are really getting into Girard's massive revolution for anthropology. Anthropology is not the same thing any longer after René Girard. So finally, I wanted to get to the question of God. So Alexander, you say that human beings, we're going to create our own God as opposed to there being an existing God. So could you talk a little bit about that? And then I would love to hear from Chad. We're obviously creating our God. We already did it. August the 6th, 1945, God exploded over Hiroshima. That's God. It's the extinction of the human race, if nothing else. The question is, since we haven't blown ourselves up since then, although we're slowly doing that, will we have enough time to create a different God? Because we're obviously moving towards creating God. The way I describe it is this. Number one, woman gives birth to children. Number two, man envies woman for giving birth to children. Number three, because man envies woman for giving birth to children, man gives birth to technology. Number four, technology develops a lot faster than child does. Number five, therefore, it's only a question before technology kills the child. Whether we kill the child symbolically, which we might hope, rather than physically, which we might not hope, is an open question. This is where my philosophy, John Sedeklist, ends. It ends with that question. God is where we came from. God is where we're going. We always put God along the time axis. So if the universe is where we came from, we're going towards probably our own extinction and whether something intelligent will replace us or whether we just end up with ultimate idiocy and blow ourselves up and it's a dead universe left without us. I don't know. We'll mm. see. Well, Chad, I'm curious on your uh, personal view. I don't know if your view and the Hindu view combine together or whether they're separate. It would be interesting to uh, touch on both when it comes to Hinduism having you know, the Atman, Brahman, uh, Purusha, Prakriti, all that. So uh, let me know what you think. I think that um, the claim by John Michael Greer is that pushing ecological thinking to its furthest limit will lead you to symbolize the whole as what is typically called God. I um, largely agree with that. And I find that to be basically the same thing you find within Hinduism. Once again, um, the um, Sanskrit formula, um, um, not this, not this, as talking about um, various um, uh, naively given objects within the plurality of the many, um, is something which um, the uh, God understood as Brahman is not this and not this because um, beyond the abstract negation, not being of this actually is inclusive of all of them. So ecological thinking pushed to its furthest limit leads you to an understanding of the whole, which I think does overlap with what people are talking about when they say God, even if they approach it from a non-ecological standpoint. I would agree and say that this is Spinoza's God. But that's the God I call God of the past. And the question, if there's a God of the future, we might create one unknowingly, is Hegel's question. 
So this is why Spinoza and Hegel have nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. They rather are in the realm between Persia and India philosophy when they discuss theology. And that's where I want to be too. So I guess Spinoza and you are right here about the God of the past, which we now should call ecology. But because we've added technology to the ecology, the question is where technology is going. And then we should ask the straightforward question to all technologists. Are you creating God? And in that case, which kind of God? Because we know the God from August the 6th, 1945, and we now live in the age of that God. Is there an alternative before that God creates total havoc? Chad, let me know if you're there, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, the yeah. rain is uh, once again a little heavy, but um, I, I think that uh, relation between political system, I think, is um, something which is temporarily tolerated. You have um, the abuse of um, um, spiritual symbolism to, for advertising, for example, also political campaigning. But that is only because you still have humans existing. And humans, no matter what, are still going to be influenced by that. Um, if you remove the humans, I really don't think there's any way to talk about the technological system in its ideal form, which is just purely uh, composed of robots and God. Because the kind of ecological thinking which leads you to God is exactly what the global technological system itself is constantly um, formulating itself in opposition to. Okay, Ultimately, Technology is just ecological impossibility, sometimes embodied within physical machines, but in, a, in its most abstract form, it's simply that sort of contradiction of ecological law. Hmm. Would it be uh, fair to say that life existence is made for the sake of us experiencing it, or do you see this as all being just random happenstance? I think life is overrated. I think what this concerns is human subjectivity in the deeply Hegelian sense. Machines do not have a subjectivity. A God coming out of machines does not have a subjectivity. The human subjective experience is in Hegel opposed to substance. So the relationship here is between God and man in the sense that if God is substance, which is the Spinozist God, then the question is, in what way are we spiritual beings? In what way do we have our own subjectivity? So mm. it's the human subjectivity we're talking about here. If there is a technology that has a subjectivity, then it's just like an alien arriving on the planet, if that would suddenly appear. But it doesn't look very likely. So as long as we are the only subjectivity we know of as humans, then you got to defend the human soul. Hmm. Well, the other uh, idea of God is that God is not like the Spinozan God. It is a God that has their own subjectivity, that is actively playing a role in we everything. We know, but yes. since Shad and I totally disagree with that worldview, since apparently he's a bit of a Hindu and I'm a Zoroastrian, let's just skip the fucking Abrahamic <laughs> religions for once. Like, they're always being heard. We don't need them. No, but I am curious whether that kind of God also is within Hinduism as far as having, uh, for example, Krishna, you know, be there with Arjuna and the Bhagavad Gita and all that. So I know, Chad, I don't want to dwell too much on that, but I am curious what uh, you see as being this uh, idea of the act of God within Hinduism. Uh, one thing which um, Swami Prabhupada mentions within his, um, his lectures on the path of perfection is that um, the interpretation of God as being something of a void, if you take the, the abstract negation, God is not this, not this, well, you, you might fall into the idea of 
God as um, a negative void. And he says that's exactly what you have to resist. God is form. Okay. And the end fate of the, the, the Krishna devotee is not to um, dissolve into the void of Brahman, as some might interpret it. Rather, for Prabhupada, um, the, um, the end goal of the devotee of Krishna is simply to be able to um, contemplate the form of Krishna as the ultimate form. Okay? And that strikes me, uh, if I may say so, as, as being a little bit like what you find within Dante in medieval Catholicism. And at the end of the Divine Comedy is the contrast between the greatest suffering you saw within the layers of the Inferno and the greatest joy. And the greatest joy at the end of the, the Paradise um, is just getting to see God. Uh, this is a God which is not formless, uh, is not a void, but is rather the ultimate form. So there does seem to be some overlap between that view of Christianity and some views of Hinduism. Hmm, interesting. And as far as the other uh, gods with a uh, small g, would there be anything to the idea of emanations where they are all part of the one god, but they all have their specific qualities there for people? So you would have somebody in India that would be praying to Agni, for example. I don't know if Agni is being prayed to today for specific things. And what exactly is the rationale behind all of that? Well, um, the great translator of the Ramayana from Sanskrit into an early form of Hindi um, a few centuries ago, Tulsi Das, um, allegedly um, said in response to um, uh, people who mentioned that God isn't the particular form of Ram, he said, maybe God is not the form of this idol, but he assumes the form of this and many other idols out of compassion for you. I agree so there. you have, so, in a no, certain sense, yeah. acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you think of Zoroastrianism as the reformed version of Hinduism, which is why I'm a Zoroastrian, and I'm a Parsi, if I'm in India with you, Chad, uh, then the Parsis, they, rega they regard the iconology of, for example, these, these idols, they regard as necessary for people to be, even, to be able to connect with religion. That's, for example, at Catholicism, the most successful form of Christianity had to invent the saints because otherwise you can't relate to religion itself. So the saints are go-betweens. They're like shamans. They're go-betweens between you and God because you can never talk to God directly. Why? Because God is abstract. What the Zoroastrians then did is that they created the imperial religious order where they, they forced the Zoroastrians themselves to stay with the abstract God and become the co-creators of the world, meaning they separate the Ahura, which is the Brahmin, from the Masta, which is the mind. So, so being and mind were separated into the divine, which is Ahura Masta, which is then Zoroastrianism. What it helps them to do when they're Parsis in India is that they live in a very abstract religion and they're highly educated, incredibly successful, by far the most successful people you ever find in India. They basically own and run India, a small minority. But what they do is that they never allow you to disregard the Hindus for going worshiping Ganesha or whatever because they do regard idols as necessary in a culture anyway. So you might as well have the idols inside the religious order as an iconology, so you have some kind of order over the storytelling, rather than having them thrown out as fucking movie stars and go and kill themselves all the time, which is like the Kurt Cobains and Marilyn Monroes that we have as our icons in our secularized culture, which is, of course, not secularized at all. It's just an example of really bad religion. So religious is what all societies are, 
The question is then, where do you put the iconology that connects the general population to the religion? And where do you allow the religion in the proper priesthood to go abstract, which is the search for truth? Hmm. And in Eastern philosophy, this is the separation of the Tantra and the Sutra. The Sutra is what makes society work and what makes people love their children. And you're not allowed to tell the truth if it hurts that, because the ultimate truth is that people must love their children. That's a Sutra truth. The Tantric truth, if you're prepared for it and ready for it, is the ultimate truth about reality in all its emptiness. But the tantric pursuit can only be made by those who are prepared for it and must not be leaked into the general population. I think there's a really wise way of looking how a society must be constructed. This is why I have great, better hope for India and Asia than I have for Europe and America at the moment because we're, stuck in, we're fucking stuck with secularization following a terrible religion called Christianity. We haven't even started doing religion properly in the West. If anything, the West needs a proper religious renaissance and go back to religion. And in that case, the Persian Hebrew axis is the only only place we can go to because the Persian Hebrew axis is the origin of the West, are the only two adult religions we ever practiced in the West called Zoroastrianism and Judaism. The fucking terrible pop versions called Islam and Christianity must be left behind. Well, speaking of Islam, from what I understand, that's the fastest growing religion right now. What do you think is going to happen with, uh, with that, with Islam? Because shit is popular because human beings are flies. Oh, oh I'm that's not gonna... all there's to it. Okay, <laughs> so either comment. we start to guide people and have conversations with intelligent, few intelligent mm. people we find out there, and see if can we save humanity into a relationship with machines that actually makes more sense than where we're heading otherwise. Islamic Christianity will not help us. Because whenever they run into a problem like ecology, Chad's proposal, they will then say, oh, it doesn't matter if the world goes down because we're going to have fucking Armageddon and the Muslims and Christians will kill each other and then we get fucking New Jerusalem. That's what they said for the Mm. last 2,000 years. No, you don't. There is no Jerusalem. There's only old Jerusalem and it's terrible as it is and it needs to be repaired. Meaning you've got to do religion properly this time. You at least got to have a tantric function that goes through the pursuit of truth. Then have a sutric variety which basically teaches people to love their children. Otherwise, our civilization is over and the Muslim civilization will go down with us because it's equally bad. Interesting. I mean, I know that in the Middle East, there is the least amount of translated foreign books going over there. There does not seem to be, at least in the society, that much of a curiosity. Uh, and the other yeah. horror story is America, because America's never learned anything else but American English. They don't speak a second language, which makes them idiots. And they watch TV shows that are about nothing but Donald Trump and his ass. Okay, it's not more impressive than Arab culture, to be honest. And when America went to war with Iraq, I wrote a piece to John Sedeckis in 2004 and said, we are for the invasion of Iraq because if the fucking Arabs and Americans are busy with each other, they will leave the rest of us alone. Hmm. You know, it's just just not America. It's not more impressive. If you're not interested in the world outside your own asshole, you're not going to be much of a help. Was that America the whole time, or would you say there was a certain period where that really started to accelerate? Okay. Technology has gone up, and religion has gone down. I love the Silk Route triad. I love Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Taoism for their contributions to world history and for creating the fucking trade routes that saved us so far. America created the Disney World triad. Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and fucking Scientology. I'm not <laughs> impressed. Live with that. Yeah. The I only mean, way to get out of that is to be shad and leave fucking Boulder, Colorado, and move to India. Best radical yeah. move an American ever made. 
Oh yeah. I mean, the one, the one th- big criticism I would have for Mormonism as well, but even more so Scientology, is their architecture and their interior design is very Let, tasteless. Let's not talk about that. Can we please avoid the post-Abrahamic religions too? All Go right, all right. Chad Hawk's beautiful work and his yes. So, so we are we are going to be we're going to be com- concluding the stream once again. If there are any super chats for all you guys to sneed out there, you got to sneed those super chats right now. Subscribe and also if you want to help the show grow patreon.com slash break the rules is where you go you are going to get very beautiful gifts when you become a patron if you are a fan of woodworking my father alexander also named alexander he's going to have these very beautiful wooden magnets for you for the 20 dollar tier for the uh, five dollar tier you guys are going to get the mp3s of the episodes after they come out you're also going to get special patreon only episodes that are going to be coming out soon and a lot of other good stuff and lastly for 50 dollars you are going to get custom custom magnets, whatever design you want, as well as if you're a fan of sticks, you can get this beautifully painted Stig's dragon as well. It is not a magnet, but it's something that you could put on your wall. It's very beautiful. So there we go. That was the shilling for the Patreon. Once again, patreon.com slash break the rules. Here is the link. Go there right now. So we are going to conclude this by asking uh, you guys what you're working on. So, Chad, what is it that we are going to be looking forward to from the great and powerful Chad Haig? Our current uh, writing project is the philosophy of John Michael Greer. Um, Luckily, I'm able to correspond with him to uh, get a better idea of of his thought. So um, hopefully that will be released sometime later this year. Excellent. And uh, where can people find you? Everything can be found on Amazon. Excellent. I'm going to have the link for everybody to uh, purchase uh, your wonderful work and also Patreon, patreon.com, Chad Haig. I'm going to put the link here as well for all of you guys. And Alexander Bard, you are working on a new book as well. Can you uh, tell us all about it? I'm writing Process and Event to come out next year with Jan Söderqvist and also Catalyst is involved in that project too. And Catalyst and I are working on the negatology, which is basically the construction of proper Western Zen and more than that. Those are the books I work on. And Chad, next time I'm coming over to India, you got to go to Mysore and meet up with me and meditate together. Absolutely. Excellent. So before we go, any final thoughts on the conversation, certain things that you think we didn't touch on as much? Uh, now is the opportunity. I'm Our, perfectly happy being the Persian, Chad being the Indian, and Americans not get a voice. I love it. Chad, what do you think? It was a great discussion. Um, thank you so much, uh, both of you. Uh, uh, a lot of things um, which uh, you know brought up, which um, you know uh, I'll be thinking about for some time. I really appreciate it. Excellent. So with that, I love waking up early in the morning. This is a wonderful stream. Really appreciate it. And guys, once again, like this video. If you like it, it's going to help the algorithm. And click that bell. We do not have enough bell clickers. I looked in the analytics. So click that bell so you're going to be able to get updates. The next stream we are going to have, we are going to have Paul Town. Paul Town is coming back to town. And he's going to be talking about AI, technology, all that stuff with uh, several guests who are more of the uh, 
transhuman persuasion. I know that Chris Bartlett, who is currently living in Japan, is going to be joining us for that. There may be a few other surprise guests, so let's see what we have uh, cooking there. That's going to be on Friday, though, not Thursday. That's going to be on Friday. Things are still kind of up in the air. More sticks. Sticks is going to be coming back real soon with a lot of very interesting guests who you're going to find out soon. And lastly, follow me on Twitter at LovePo on Twitter. So there we go. Everybody subscribe. Keep on subscribing. Thank you guys so much for watching. 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 Thank you guys.